I'm Damien Chazelle, the director. Josh Singer, the writer. Tom Cross, the film editor. Right now you're hearing uh, the beginnings of a build-up crescendo wall of sound that one of our brilliant sound designers, uh, Eileen Lee, uh, created. But this was actually described in Josh's script. I think it was uh, sort of earliest drafts, I think, described this kind of uh, slow build-up of plain sounds that would eventually thrust us into the, the X-15. Yeah, we, uh, we talked a fair amount about sound and sound design as we were, you know, coming up with the ideas, sketching things out, but certainly not anywhere near as uh, detailed as what Ling and her team did. Originally, there was actually more. This finished scene is a lot, it's, it's different from what it originally was going to be um, in terms of dialogue and in terms of starting. Oh, right. I forgot, yeah. Neil used to talk through the whole scene. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. We went up I to forgot. Edwards and did a ton of research up there and uh, spoke to Gene Matranga, who had worked with Neil on the X-15, Spoke to Joe Engel, one of the last X-15 pilots, got the comms for this, this particular flight, as well as the pilot notes and pilot comments. So we had fully fleshed it out, on the page at least. Yeah, I remember a few drafts in, then, you know, we were starting, I mean, I think early on we had kind of, well, yeah, it must have been very, very early on because uh, I remember this also being described in the script was uh, the fact that the camera, for the most part, wouldn't leave the cockpit. And, uh, I mean, we do do craft-mounted shots, but I think the big challenge we had here, both in sort of storyboarding the scene and shooting it and editing it, was the sort of rule we set for ourselves that, that the camera would never go outside the vicinity of the spacecraft. So, you know, again, exteriors would be completely craft mounted so you'd never get a god's eye view or a wide view where you could sort of see for instance right now you know his plane is pretty much vertical uh going up so you can suggest that with these craft mounted shots you can suggest it with the profile of him sort of going 90 degrees but you can never see it from afar and uh the really tricky part is later when he starts to bounce sort of clearly enough communicating what exactly is happening the sort of attempt to descend and then kind of starting to skip across the atmosphere without the benefit of, of any true exteriors, any wide shots, and having to just rely on things like the altimeter, you know, gauges and views out the window, limited views that Neil himself would have had. I think in a way this is a great test for us in terms of editing, in terms of putting stuff together to figure out what is what is the bare minimum that we need to tell the story? You know, we rely heavily on uh, Ryan's face. That says quite a bit, I think, when you have someone like Ryan where his eyes tell you so much. You can kind of hang your hat on that to a certain extent. You know, I, I think, seem to remember us, you had pre-planned this so well, like, like all the other scenes, but uh, I seem to remember us really, really kind of hanging our hat on Ryan to a certain extent you know, and seeing his looks, seeing his reactions, that was a really important thing. Now, the one thing we miss here, because we lost a lot of the comms, is the fact that in actuality, Neil was focused on the G-limiter, which was uh, something he was testing, was supposed to kick in uh, when enough G-forces hit as he was descending into the atmosphere. 
and he was so focused on the G-limiter that he neglected to notice that he had started to balloon. We get beautifully, I think, in the editing, the shooting and in Ryan's performance, you get that he's missed that and how he starts to sail up to a place where he has no aerodynamic control. Yeah, that's kind of the, the main issue here, which is sort of what, what gets Neil in trouble, is that the aircraft goes high enough, you know, as you see, gravity starts to slip by when he uh, gets to a certain height, that um, the aerodynamic controls, the ordinary ways of maneuvering a plane don't work anymore, so he has to rely on RCS, essentially uh, thrusters on the wings and, and on the nose to sort of guide him up or down or left or right to pitch roll and yaw. Now, of course, the problem here is that because he sailed, he winds up far downfield, 20 miles away from where he's supposed to land. And this craft doesn't land with thrusters. It lands, you know, via dead stick landing. So now he's got to glide a plane that doesn't glide very well at all much farther than he ordinarily would have to do and do a straight-in approach. Yeah, they would often refer to it as, as basically landing a brick. It's essentially what it is. It's this heavy, I mean, it was amazing actually kind of seeing the actual, some of these actual, uh, there, there was sort of an X-15 carcass in Edwards when we went to visit it, and kind of seeing that kind of pile of, you know, it's kind of a scrap heap of metal, and imagining that, again, without the benefit of an engine, because you've used up the engine by the time you uh, pitch over at high altitude, trying to glide that down to a landing without the whole thing coming apart. and which sometimes it did come apart. I mean, this was, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning, this was not a particularly safe aircraft. Yeah, yeah. It was actually much more dangerous to be a research test pilot at Edwards than it was uh, to be an astronaut, and we know it was pretty dangerous to be an astronaut. By the way, I love that classic Armstrong understatement, which Ryan does so well of, I'm down, as the last line there. Actually, yeah, that was, that I think was actually why, if I'm remembering correctly, like, we, we decided to forego. That was one of the reasons we decided to forego Neil dialogue in the uh, in the first scene. Because it wasn't only in the script, we shot it. Ryan performed all the dialogue uh, that Neil initially said in, in that scene, which ended with I'm down. And it suddenly I think it felt that that would be actually a much better entrance line than a closing line. We thought it'd be more like his character would be a little bit stronger. Yeah. And all the other comms you hear in the background just kind of serve as sound effects in a way. Sound design, it's just texture. Yeah, yeah. By the way, we shot this all at a dry lake bed not far from, it was at Edwards, uh, not far from where Neil had flown the X-15 and landed. And it was a gorgeous, gorgeous day. And we got great this, footage This is our last day of shooting. Yeah. 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 It's pretty glorious. And this, uh, this is the Cobalt machine. It's pretty much what what the real thing looked like and how it operated and sounded. It's pretty awful. Um, but it was it was kind of a, like a predecessor to, uh, I mean, is that right? I mean, basically a predecessor to, to uh, yeah, it was a more new, modern forms of chemo. Yeah, it was a new form at the time. It's pretty rugged. Uh, Karen made it through two sessions of it, and then it was just too much for her. So and we're trying to illustrate some of the havoc that it would wreak. This flight actually took place in April, uh, which was after she had passed, but Neil did a 
similar flight in December. He just didn't balloon uh, before she had passed. But we wanted to get to meet her so you get to feel the real loss. Uh, so we sort of combined the two flights. Um, she passed in January of, uh, of 62. She was two and change. Does that fly in the sky? Yeah. Cow. Cool. And the whole family lived together in this uh, cabin in Juniper Hills, uh, really rustic, small cabin. As you get a sense of in a later scene, they all slept in the same bedroom, Karen's bed, the parents' bed, uh, and young Rick, his bed was all in one room sometimes separated by kind of clothing sheets. I mean, it was that kind of a cabin. And we actually, uh, I remember after a Edwards Air Force Base scout, we went around looking for Neil's cabin. We'd asked Neil's family, Rick, Mark, Janet. We were able to spend time with them, and they were incredibly helpful through the whole process of giving us insight and feedback. And, and uh, Rick actually drew a floor plan for us for their house in Houston, and we kind of built the house based on based on what he gave us. Um, but for this cabin in Juniper Hills, we, uh, we knew it, it was still standing, but it didn't really have an address, a street address of any kind. I mean, it was truly sort of up, tucked away at the top of a hill uh, on its own. Um, so Rick told us roughly where it would be, and we started driving around and, and trying to find it. And with no luck, you know, we would just sort of encounter lots of trespassing signs with, like, uh, uh, you know, pictures of rifles and things like that. And we, uh, uh, and we sort of circled around for about half an hour, an hour or so, kind of getting a sense of topography, and, but losing faith that we would actually find the actual cabin. And then at some point, this car, uh, Nathan and I, the production designer, we started walking, and the car pulls up. And, uh, or no, 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 car passes by, and Nathan says, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go knock on that guy's window and ask him. And I, I'm trying to dissuade Nathan from doing this. Nathan's a you know, British guy, a thick British accent, and I've just seen a bunch of these uh, rifle signs, and I just think this is a terrible <laughs> idea. And Nathan says, no, 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 I'm going to go do it. And he goes and he knocks on the, knocks on the window. And guess what? The guy driving the car lived in Neil's cabin. So Nathan asks, do you know where Neil Armstrong's cabin was? And the guy says, yes, actually, I live there. <laughs> and so he said, come with me. And he leads us to the cabin that we built a pretty much exact replica of. And so that was how we were able to get in the cabin, walk around it, take a ton of photos, figure out what had changed since Neil and Janet lived there. It was obviously a new family living there now. And, um, and then in Atlanta, where we shot the bulk of the movie, we, uh, Nathan Crowley and, and his incredible team rebuilt it from scratch, pretty much as, as an exact replica. Yeah, a cu couple little fudges. Neil didn't have an office, so we built one for him so he could get away to have that call with Jack Hoffman, his uh Yeah, in, fa in fact, that's the irony. We, we, we made the cabin actually a slightly less tiny and rustic yeah. than, than it really was. Yeah. It was even more. Yeah. This was our first day of shooting here. First day of principal photography. We did about two weeks of kind of non-principal photography, rehearsals uh, uh, with uh, Ryan and Claire Foy, who plays Janet, and, and the kids um, in some of the house sets. Because we sort of wanted to build up the idea of a family for them before we started with footage like this. Yeah, a lot of the family stuff is great because it's improvised, and that, I think, works so well is because Damien rehearsed them for two weeks 
and shot that and used some of that. And then there was some, you know, then on the day, because they had that familiarity, uh, it just made it all feel so much more real. And the kids had no experience before the cameras, right? Yeah, th so this kid, Gavin Warren, was the most experienced, but had never been on a, a feature film set or anything, but just uh, had a little bit of familiarity. The other kids were truly, you know, just sort of open casting calls. I remember we, we sort of cast out of, cast a little bit out of Georgia, but mainly out of Texas, a little bit out of, out of Alabama. My, my wife, Olivia, who plays Pat White in the film, wound up driving into rural Alabama and just sort of going to random schools and, and asking if kids there would be interested in, in uh, being in a movie. And uh, she's very approachable and charming, so it kind of, she got away with it. But she did get a, a, a principal, uh, ushered her to, to his office. Did you know this story? Yeah, oh, I think I heard a little bit. <laughs> yeah, a principal who actually wound up being incredibly helpful to us and actually helped us set up a casting call there. But right. initially, when he first saw... <laughs> this strange woman walking around the halls of his school asking parents, hey, would your kids be interested in being in a movie? Right. I actually don't, <laughs> I don't blame him. Are you really surprised that Olivia got sent to the principal's office? Come on now. <laughs> that's, that's what I mean, you know, I think he was doing his job. Right. By the way, that scene of Neil crying uh, is actually incredibly provocative. You know, people don't tend to think of astronauts as criers. They don't tend to think of astronauts as suffering. And, you know, when we first circulated the script out to folks like Dave Scott and Mike Collins and others, there was some real reaction about that, you know, you know, and you would think, well, it's the most natural thing in the world to have, you know, a guy cry after the death of his daughter. And yet it was, you know, I think surprising. I think it, it's part of what we're trying to do to get underneath, you know, who this guy was as a human, that of course he suffered. Yeah, a little bit trying to puncture that. Yeah. The myth a little bit of yeah. these sort of unfeeling, um, yeah. you know, yeah. unstoppable superheroes. Yeah. Uh, Neil, in fact, did go right back to work. Uh, the funeral was on a Wednesday, and he went back to work on a Monday, uh, I believe. You can take a few days off, you know. And uh, there was speculation uh, backed up by a number of, you know, reasonable sources in Jim's book that Neil might have been grounded because he had three incidents right uh, after the death of his daughter, uh, three flying incidents, the first of which we just saw at the top of the film. Uh, and so he was taken off of this British trip to fly this, uh, this uh, Delta wing. And then there was rumor that Bickle grounded him. And Bickle, who was in charge of Joe Walker, his supervisor in charge of FRC, actually did not recommend him for the astronaut program, uh, which most people don't know. And it was specifically because of these incidents. Yeah, I would say that's kind of another thing, like, uh, that, that you can put on the list along with, you know, Neil shedding tears and things like that, that, that just don't form part of the, the sort of normal preconceptions about who Neil Armstrong was, uh, you know, the idea that there would have been questions about his performance uh, at Edwards around the time that he was uh, going to apply to become an astronaut. You know, those sort of things I think that interested me and, and all of us the most was, you know, the ways in which it was not a preordained conclusion that he was going to be the first man. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's Patrick. I love Patrick. Civilian? Yeah, speaking of things that aren't, you know, very well known, Elliot C. Yeah. Elliot. 
was uh, yeah. one of Neil's closest friends in the program. And uh, the only other civilian, actually, in the new nine. So you can kind of see the sea of uh, military uniforms here and uh, Neil and Elliot standing out like sore thumbs, so to speak. Yeah. thought it was cold. That little joke about it being cold, you know, is one of, I think, the, the lines that I'm proudest of in the script, just because it wasn't the first version. It was probably the 15th. And also, it's exactly what we were told about Neil's sense of humor, how it was wry, and if you weren't looking, he'd slip it past you. Yeah, so subtle that you kind of... <laughs> yeah. You can... Uh, you might miss it. You can easily miss it. Do you have any thoughts on that decision? Well, even considering Von Braun's initial criticism, it seems that the payload saved by parking the primary vehicle in orbit and sending a small... A lot of people don't know that these guys were engineers, this second crew. I mean, they were really smart guys, and they all they were looking for a background in engineering because they were helping to design these ships. So, hence the questions about the program. And then this quote is an actual quote, which Ryan found. Mark had sent him a tape with Neil talking about getting up above the atmosphere. And it actually, the quote was in Jim's book. And so I went back and we just put it into the scene at Ryan's suggestion. And I think it's beautiful uh, what he does with it. And I think it's a beautiful sentiment about exploration and why it's important for us. I don't know what space exploration will uncover, but I don't think it'll be exploration just for the sake of exploration. I think it'll be more the fact that it... This scene was one of these, like, deceptively tricky scenes to edit, I remember, because it was, uh... It used to be all sort of of a piece a little bit, and, and we tried to kind of sort of bifurcate it a little bit tempo-wise. Right. And the shooting of it sometimes would make it difficult, but sometimes was our friend. It kind of cut both ways in a way. The verite shooting. We wound up kind of uh, basically starting it off with more, more kind of chokers and uh, the camera kind of catching things as it can, pencils and paper, glances, sideways glances, things like that. And then we only kind of lock in on sort of a what you'd call like a medium of Ryan for his, basically for his speech, for the, the dialogue about exploration, at which point the whole scene slows down. I mean, actually, it was something that uh, Ryan, that we played with with Ryan in the editing room because, right. um, and I'm, tr I'm sort of forgetting the way the scene used to operate, but I remember Ryan making the point, which I liked how he put it, was that, you know, it would actually help the arc of the scene if you got the sense that the guys are not on Neil's tempo right. at first. And only at a certain point does the scene, essentially, the guys in the scene click into Neil's tempo. Right. When he starts that, that specific portion of the speech. Yeah. There was like a key moment. Once you, me, and Ryan figured out what that was because Ryan had a specific opinion about what take he thought was best or what pieces. Yeah. Which you guys, I mean, you agreed on that. Once we figured that out, then it was a matter of, of kind of hanging our hat on that, like holding on that one which meant that the rest of the scene could be played differently to kind of tee up that moment. Yeah, yeah, because then it sort of fell into place at that point. How great was Claire in that last scene? I mean, I guess, I guess she's great in all scenes. <laughs> yeah, Claire was, uh, it was kind of amazing how things worked out because she did a read for the part that was essentially her kind of take on a 
a real interview that Janet gave during Apollo 11 and uh, during through the latter chunk of that mission. And the read was so extraordinary. It was so kind of spellbinding, and she did so much with language that she's got this incredible gift of telling you an entire story that has nothing to do with the language that she's saying. It's sort of in between the lines. It's underneath. And uh, this interview is kind of Janet putting on a face, which Janet Armstrong had to do a lot. And Claire kind of lets you in on this secret inner life, both in this read that she did, but also, I think, in, uh, throughout the movie. Anyway, it was extraordinary, and uh, it was so good, in fact, that that I remember I told you to then just put that interview yeah, we put into, it right in, in, into the, the script. Yeah, we put it right in the end of the movie. Yeah. 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 Sputnik. Sputnik 2. Vostok. Big Aaron. The Soviets have beaten us at every single major space accomplishment. Our program couldn't compete. So we've chosen to focus on a job so difficult, requiring so many technological developments that the Russians are going to have to start from scratch, as will we. This section was kind of interesting because... Oh, this section was... A, yeah. Yeah, this, this used to be several freestanding scenes that we ended up kind of folding into each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it used to be the full, um, this full chalkboard scene, which used to start off with Russian footage, actually, of a Russian, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the early Vostok yeah, missions, yeah. yeah. And then, then you had this full chalkboard dissertation, and then, then Cronkite talking about Cuban Missile Crisis, and then we're at home for the introduction of Pat, and then it was multi-axis trainer, I think, right? Right. What's kind of interesting about our the end result here is it's uh, it really seems to it kind of came out as a real illustration of what you guys would always refer to as the moon in the kitchen. Hmm. Yeah, to sort of to kind of literalize that away in a way to sort of juxtapose uh, these uh, essentially what what Deke played by Kyle Chandler is drawing on this board with what's going on in the home life, and that both are actually part of the equation. Assigned a flight with a specific task. Only after we master all these tasks do we move on to Apollo. Consider trying to land on the moon. That, you know, it's it's all well and good to say we're going to go to the moon, but there's practical implications to that, you know. And so it was really important to us. Remember that we we cert, we used to have certain cuts where where the the actual implications of, for example, moving to a new place were shortchanged. Right. Where we were trying to kind of get on to things like this, the multi-axis trainer and catch up with the family later and it just didn't really it didn't really work it felt like to do justice to kind of the life lived you had to get a sense of what it means not too long after the loss of a child to 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 change homes to change lives to suddenly meet new neighbors suddenly you're in a different arena there's a new kid on the way you know it's it's uh, this kind of attempt to start off anew the fresh start uh, to quote Janet, yeah, yeah. Or to quote you, Josh. <laughs> no, there were a lot of things you had to get across. So, this is a pretty cool, you know, it, all of these things were built by Nathan Crowley, right? And they match. I mean, you can look at pictures of the real uh, yeah. multi axis trainer. It matches pretty accurately. It's pretty wild. And this multi axis trainer, was this, was this actually. Uh, initially for Mercury astronauts? Or? Yeah, so this is one of the, you know, we're pretty accurate in the movie, and so much so that I, I wrote a book about where we take license. 
This is one of the small areas where we take license. This was used uh, predominantly for the Mercury guys, um, the Mastiff, uh, it was, that's the acronym for the facility. Uh, and it was stopped, they stopped using it in 62, uh, but we quote unquote hypothesized that perhaps Gus might have wanted to put the guys through the same, you know, stuff that he'd been through. They stopped using it because they didn't have a situation like this arise in space, but of course this is the exact yeah. situation yeah. that arises in the Gemini, so we just couldn't, you know, we, we just wanted to do it as a way of, you know, sort of seeding, um, you know, what what would happen and, and, and getting you some sort of familiarity with the challenge once we get into the Gemini, which starts roll coupling on all three axes. We went back and forth, though, I remember, almost late in prep. We yeah. were, I remember it was down to the wire because, you know, the producers were telling me, okay, we've got to figure out whether we're building this multi-axis train or not. Are you doing this or are you doing the vomit comment? Right, so that and was sort of the other option. they were about the same us. price. Uh, yeah, it literally came down to, well, if one is massively cheaper than the other, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. And when we found out that we weren't going to be saving a ton of money, yeah, um, these, are, the, these, these are the logistical decisions the that yeah. then you forget about and, and, and you try to sort of justify yeah. artistically, or one, one does, but, um, but, and that was Ryan but in a way in it came down to... Uh, Mostly Ryan actually got into that device. In the, uh, in the multi-axis? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Ryan, and then for the POV stuff, it's, uh, it was Adam Hart, his, his stunt double. And uh, yeah, that's also worth saying that, you know, it wasn't just that Nathan built that multi-axis trainer and all these other crafts, but, you know, in the, for the, in the case of the multi-axis trainer... Um, Using a multi-staged launch vehicle, it's necessary to... There's nothing in the way of kind of, you know, digital manipulation to make it move a certain way. I mean, it was right. essentially, he built it to move that way. And so it was actually kind of a collaboration between him and the special effects department, Jim and J.D. Schwamm, who, who basically enabled the thing to move and, uh, and to put Ryan in it and be safe and uh, let us strap cameras to it. You know, it had to be heavy enough to support cameras and everything, so... And he did it for several takes. I remember. It's. I mean, he's, yeah, there was then, a good then, chunk of material. And then, he, and then I remember there was. Uh, I was asked to stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because you know they have a version of this now at Space Camp, and it doesn't make kids vomit because they only they limit it to one rotation in a given direction, and then they'll switch up the direction so your inner oh, stays fine. I was wondering actually how they. But Frank Hughes explained that you know back you know back when they were using this thing they didn't do that. And so it would wreak havoc on your ear, and guys would be vomiting all over the place yeah. like we have them do. I am told that the, the uh, in terms of license we take, that the bathrooms that they would vomit in were slightly less <laughs> horrible looking than, uh, than the one we have. But I just couldn't, I couldn't resist if you, that, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the most awful bathroom in the history of bathrooms. Yeah. Felt like that was a place to put our future first man. Pretty good. Uh, in the stall. Uh, this, by the way, is another, I think, direct quote from Neil from his interviews with Jim uh, uh, about, you know, you know, or, or a conversation he had somewhere, you know, talking about, you know, the way in which, you know, you fly a spacecraft versus you fly a plane. He really loved flight and was fascinated by it. And, you know, that's where I think he drew his greatest joy, you know, to the extent he drew joy uh, from the work. Yeah, it was something that I think I remember we, was important to Ryan, and uh, it was sort of this uh, this idea of, of the child and Neil, that this sort of boyhood love of aviation, that this was someone who learned to fly before he learned to drive. This was someone who 
um, you know, grew up in these cornfields in northwestern Ohio, and all you see there is sky. I mean, you see you see farms, you see fields going to infinity, but really, what you're seeing the most of is sky. And I think there's a reason, actually, that Ohio, you know, has produced more astronauts so many aviators, than, yeah. than any other. Uh, yeah, so many aviators. Period. You know, I mean, all yeah. the way from the Wright brothers on, but then and also in terms of astronauts, uh, so many Glenn, of the iconic yeah. astronauts, and and just in sheer numbers, more astronauts per per capita than any yeah. other state. So it's it's there's something something in the soil, there's something in the region, um, but I think it was something you saw in Neil, this kind of, uh, even when he got older, just this, this, uh, and even through all the traumatic losses that he went through that we reflect in the movie, uh, you know, this, this wide-eyed wonderment um, and this yearning for, for exploration and for discovery. Yeah. Now, that record that Neil and Janet were dancing to was actually a favorite of theirs uh, called Music Out of Moon that featured the theremin. Uh, and it's one of two albums Neil took to space with him, as you'll hear later, and it sort of inspired Justin to use use some theremin, uh, which is what makes the music, you know, I mean, it's a wonderful score uh, Justin Hurwitz uh, yeah, that, created. Yeah, the we, transition we saw, too, from the, from oh, the dancing, right, right. from Janet and Neil dancing uh, to... Uh, dancing to dancing. To Marilyn C. and, and a kid dancing was something that we kind of discovered in the editing room because we there's some stuff that we took out of the movie, such as the fire, the house fire. Yeah, the house. There was a whole series of scenes. Right. About 10, 11 scenes that wound up on the cutting room floor. 10, 11? I think so. Oh, there you, a lot oh, of you, little scenes oh, around. Oh, you mean in total? In a, yeah, 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 yeah. I thought you meant between the kiss and the feet. Yeah, between the kiss and the feet. There was not 10 to 11. T- yeah, I think it's like 7, 8 oh, scenes. Oh, th- that's because you're counting the house fire as like 5 yeah, scenes because exactly. you cut in. And, exactly. That's only screenwriters call those I'm just scenes. saying, <laughs> it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> well, they, just it trying, was hard to, it was trying hard to play to the world's smallest fire. I know. We, we really loved those scenes. They were really powerful. Uh, you know, you guys... Yeah, we did burn down a, a full house. In you burned. A, in, you in, in you had Nathan Crowley and, recreate uh, those, uh, the Armstrong house, including yeah. putting it in an in-ground pool, and then you burned it down for that scene. Yeah, yeah. But it, it you know, it, I, I was, but I was, you know, I think we all knew pretty early on it didn't fit, you know. And we'd played with losing it at the script stage too. Yeah, yeah. And then I remember just didn't that. have the courage of our convictions at, at that point. Yeah, I, I, I will always be somewhat embarrassed to say that late in prep when we were really having budget issues and, like, trying to figure out, oh, God, how are we going to make this movie? Because, you know, we hadn't really got a full, you know, full sort of solid green light. And so you're trying to think of, you know, what can we lose? What can we shave? This happens on every movie. And you try to make really educated guesses because you don't want to be wasting money on things that aren't going to be in the film. And my first AD, uh, Scott Robertson, who was really trying to figure out the schedule in a way that was going to work for us and give us enough time to shoot things uh, properly, said to me, you know, Damien, I, I really have to say, especially in the, you know, given all the space sequences we need to do, uh, do you really think you need that fire? I feel like the story would work without it. And I said, uh, what the hell are you talking about? Of course I need the fire. It's so <laughs> crucial for this and this and this. And oh my God, the movie wouldn't, it just right, falls up. And right. in fact, the, the fact that you even would mention that just makes me think you, you must not understand what we're trying to do. And I, I just, and anyway, I, I kind of walked off in a huff. And, and so we shot the fire. And, uh, and then, yeah, then we cut it out. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Scott. You were completely right. <laughs> You're listening. It's not the first time I've been yeah. wrong. <laughs> it probably won't be the last. Well, a lot of people, I think, don't realize that, you know, for every crew, uh, you'd have a prime crew and a backup crew. And the backup crew, they would train for, you know, five to eight months, and the backup crew would do everything the prime crew would, would do in case there was a problem. 
you know, in case somebody got sick and, you know, you had to go up at the last minute. And so Neil and Elliot trained really hard together uh, on Gemini 5. They were the backup crew. And uh, so this is them sending off the Gemini 5 guys in space, uh, Conrad and uh, Cooper. And, uh, and uh, they, yeah, there was also some reference to in terms of the order of events, Gemini 4 beforehand, you know, which you saw Ed talking about. Right. We, we used to have that in the script. Too. Yeah, we wrote, a, we... we wrote a whole sequence because Ed does the first EVA and we did a whole sequence where Neil's talking to him up in space. Uh, while he's doing that EVA, or after he does the EVA. But again, it was something that didn't quite, wasn't quite on spine. We've got a big EVA plan for eight. Dave's a workhorse. Yes, sir. I'll talk to you. And sort of the tragedy of Elliot C. I mean, to me, is 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 so much. You know, that that he that he never made it up into space. You know, I think it's one of the reasons why. Obviously, you know. the, the, the Sort of casualties of the space program, like Ed White, are are generally much better known than than Elliot. Uh, but he was one of those nine. Again, he was very close to Neil, um, but he died before ever getting a mission. Yeah. Now this is something you guys threw together. This is all improv, and you guys threw together in post. Yeah. Some of this is from those rehearsals, right? Yeah, because we had we had a scripted scene that didn't quite work here, and uh, and I love what you guys did here. Well, it was, this was another case where we had this amazing rehearsal footage, and it's like a lot of the other footage, even in the scripted scenes where, Damien, you had Linus and other camera operators grab things that you would see out of the corner of your eye. Uh, a lot of the shooting in this movie was like that, where you knew you were, you were documenting, you were gathering uh, moments you thought were very authentic, very real. And, you know, we really tried to find a place for all that stuff in the movie because that, that, that really helped balance out the kitchen sink part of the story yeah. in, in, a very, in a very beautiful, real way. And it was, uh, yeah, I remember there was just kind of, it was almost an accident, I think, that there happened to be that shot of the, the rain on the, on the swimming pool. Yeah, it was right. because, so lovely. Because it was... Uh, I remember we were we were doing one of those swimming pool days and it started to rain. And you guys had to run. And we had to run, but I think someone rolled the camera. Or what I can't remember, or could it have been one of these days when we were shooting a rain scene and someone happened to point the camera at the pool. I can't remember exactly where that shot of the pool is from. But anyway, it, the raining pool, but it was never tied. It was never, you know, storyboarded or scripted or planned or anything tied to any of the pool scene, scene work. But um, there's something about that in the spare, like, uh, soda bottle. Sitting by the edge of the pool. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, it was you, lucky we were able to use it as a beautiful transition. Yeah. You always said it reminded you of Raging Bull. So that, yeah, that's, that's that, something about it, <laughs> coupled with the music and the atmosphere. It's but no, I don't think there's anything in Raging Bull with a raining swimming pool and a soda bottle. There's a lot, there's I don't pool think there stuff, is. Though. There's pools. There's yeah. pool stuff. That's right, with a diving board. Her, yeah, yeah. You're right. Was it fun? This is, again, you know, this movie is tough right because and just like Neil's life every time he has a moment of of happiness he gets sucked back in he gets sucked back in by the current of death right and and this starts out you know the current uh, of death current current of death yeah I mean this you know it's nice this happened <laughs> I like that the current of death this 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 uh, this happened two weeks before he was set to go up in Gemini 8 and it's the first of actually three deaths, only two of which do we depict, that ha would happen over that 12 months to people he was quite close to. Um, it was rugged. 
Oh, here's Buzz. Yeah, the other deaths are uh, Ed White, who you you see that event later in the film. But and then Joe, Joe Walker. Walker is one that we couldn't we, squeeze We debated in. whether to include because he's the guy played by uh, Brian, Brian Darcy, Darcy James uh, earlier in the film, you know, who comes by the house and is the first to talk to Neil after his flight and whatnot. The one who breaks the news to Neil also that uh, that he's not going to fly the... Uh, yeah, I couldn't kill off Brian. Brian as well. <laughs> he's got too soft a place in my heart. It was, it was almost that irony of... Uh, in a way, it was kind of like a similar situation we've wound up finding with the fire, that there was almost a, a sort of pileup of tragedy in Neil's life yeah. that um, almost became forced from a narrative standpoint. Yeah. We actually had to streamline the tragedy. I think this is one of these scenes that I remember watching Claire's performance, and, and I just, uh, you know, an early scene, and I was just blown away. Yeah. And I actually didn't know Claire was not American I, when I started <laughs> editing the movie. Yeah. Um, I just thought that she was this you amazing actress Crown, from the Midwest. I had not seen The Crown. My wife had seen The Crown and loved it, and I went home to tell my wife about this amazing actress, <laughs> this new Claire actress. Foy. And the more I spoke with my wife about it, the more I realized that she was British and not American yeah. at all. But I, yeah. I didn't know. No. This is actually what she says here about the deaths. It's actually something we got verbatim from Janet. It was one of our sit-downs with Janet. Janet told us this. And I literally took her language almost verbatim. Um, yeah, the idea of getting good at funerals. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah. I remember when we shot that, I remember being up on the rig and watching take after take of Claire, and every take was magnificent. In fact, the last take where we rolled out, like... Oh, yeah, you were very mad when we rolled we out. Were, we, were, we were really upset, uh, you know. No, I was actually feeling fine because I knew we got it, but yeah, you, you yeah. were mad. But the last take was just, you know, I mean, look, it was... Uh, uh, Josh was always mad. <laughs> it's my secret. Yeah, always angry. Hey, buddy. Speaking of anger... You know, it's funny, as restrained as Neil is in this movie, uh, this scene, uh, which which I now love, uh, I remember having trouble with because, you know, I talked to the boys and they were not sure Neil would have ever taken this sort of attack with someone, uh, even at this moment of profound grief. Um and uh, it just shows you a little bit of the challenge we had, I think, in 
you know, portraying a guy who was that emotionally tightly packaged, that that would have been seen as an outburst, uh, you know, of, 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 yeah. of perhaps too great proportion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tricky. It's like that balance of um, the balance of the between the poker face and then occasionally letting you glimpse what's what's you know occasionally that poker face has to uh, have chips in it or crumble or let yeah. a little light out and it's uh, and sort of judging how to pace those things out. I remember it was actually that was actually something that uh, we had to kind of almost recalibrate after losing the fire because right. one thing the fire was very valuable. Uh, for was less less the fact of the fire itself and the house burning down, um, and more the fact that it it it, uh, it unleashed a sort of outburst, like a real outburst, an outburst by anyone's standards, really, from from Neil um, to to his son Rick, um, who doesn't uh, follow him out of the house initially. So Neil has to go back and get him, and and is terrified of losing another child, and so you get this sort of uh, uh, you know this. You know, very understandable, justifiable outburst. Um, that's very unlike the, the Neil we see throughout the rest of the movie, and it seemed like a very valuable color to be to be exhibiting. Um, but it it wasn't worth. It wound up not being worth, in our minds at least, the the uh, you know all the shoe leather, the real that, estate, yeah. That, yeah, the real estate that that it took up. Yeah, so it was I think also, once it was we lost it, we had to kind of go back and. Yeah, it was a wonderful performance by Ryan, too. That was the other thing that was sort of sad. That whole scene, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. just his... I mean, he's terrific throughout it. But A scene like this is such an editor's dream because <laughs> you got all these amazing pieces. I mean, you got so many pieces, we could have made this this little section strapping in. You, you, I loved watching all this stuff. I mean, we could have played this for another 20 minutes uh, with the amazing footage we had. But... It's 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 just a great. Uh, it, it, it's fun to do, you know, because you get to lean into these beautiful subjective POV shots that that you got, um, that you knew you wanted, and and then show the guys react, show Neil his eyes, and it was a great way to play around with sound too. This is the great thing writing for. Damien is, you know, we talked about this and I wrote it in the script that it, it feels like you're being shut into a coffin. And knowing that when I wrote that, that was exactly how I was going to feel on screen. <laughs> and it does with the way the way the doors close, the way you shot it. And then you add to that I think this is, this is Lena. Yeah, and, and actually this is probably, uh, I think right now, this is, these POV shots were, I mean, everything was operated by Linus uh, Sangren, the DP, the, the camera, uh, except for B camera was operated by Devin Slininger. But um, something like this was Linus himself kind of dressing up in the, uh, in the, in suit. the uh, suit and, uh, you know, in case he caught a glimpse of his arm or legs and basically climbing into where Ryan was seated. Right. To get those kind of true wide, wide angle POV shots, uh, all of which were shot also on a special small it's called an Anton Minima, like a, a, a extra small 16 millimeter camera that we could fit in with Correct. Linus into into the craft. With a tiny magazine, probably, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That took forever to load, I remember. Right. It's always an issue switching to the Anton Minima. So everything else here is shot in 16 too, but it was just on on normal Super 16 uh, cameras with normal 400 foot magazines. Looking at all these reflections and the helmets, it's probably worth pointing out that. There's no green screen here. This is all. This is this huge LED which is wrapped around 
the craft, which is on a gimbal, um, to shake it. And, and because you're having an LED project, so they had to have the whole sequence all set up ahead of time, which made for tough shooting, but you get these amazing reflections in the eyeballs and the helmets. It would be tough to do with VFX. Isn't that what Paul said? Yeah, Paul Kevin. Yeah, it's, there's just a, there's sort of these anomalies and complexities that you just you wouldn't think to do almost. Um, right. If you were if you were reconstructing those helmets. Um, but yeah, well, I remember. Yeah, I mean, the difficulty wasn't just. I mean, it was it was getting the LED screen to to you know do what we wanted it to do because it had to be in camera. You know, but uh, you know we couldn't just slap green on there and say oh we'll fix it later in post. But it was also just the helmets themselves. I mean, I learned firsthand why people tend to CG helmets these days because. CG the visors. But CG the visor, because as soon as you uh, as soon as you close that visor, then you gotta. They can't breathe. You gotta. Well, yeah. Unfortunately, you have to have your actors breathe. You're not allowed to let them asphyxiate. <laughs> so, and you also can't overheat them. So they need cooling tubes. So what's amazing is actually how quickly you basically have to construct a real suit, like a real working spacesuit. I mean, no, it doesn't have to protect them from the void of space, but it has to. <laughs> It has to provide them sort of a little mini ecosystem with cooling, uh, uh, fluid tubes, and oxygen, but not so much oxygen that it's going to drown out the audio that you're getting from them. And you can only communicate with them via an earbud and a mic because the visors are completely soundproof. So it's just, it's a whole, it's a thing that I completely yeah. underestimated. Um, but luckily we had a, uh, Mary Zoffrey's brilliant costume designer who also had uh, some experience with spacesuits from uh, uh, Interstellar, which, on which she worked with Nathan Crowley as well, the Nolan film. Um, and she was able to handle uh, these challenges uh, uh, amazingly well. What I loved about this scene here, this launch, is that you always designed it to be from the inside of the spacecraft. It was never meant to go outside. You always wanted it to be this subjective, immersive um, experience. There's one great outtake here where we were shaking uh, Ryan and Christopher Abbott, plays Dave Scott, so much. The, the gimbal was shaking so much that I think some kind of notch got got like undone or something and it shook more than it should have and so you so you see the two of them really kind of gyrating trying to say dialogues say very technical dialogue who got the dc right i remember watching the dailies five g's and then suddenly like you yet you hear people yelling cut cut yeah and as soon as as soon as as soon as it stops they just start cracking up with laughter going like oh my god pretty rugged for these guys, especially Ryan, who got shaken up repeatedly. On, and we all did this all in a month, all of these interior well, this, shots. Well, this and, X, and the X-15 X were done in one week, and uh, and then we had to we had to give Ryan a break. We had to uh, not put him on a gimbal uh, for a while, so we shot other stuff, shot stuff without him. Sometimes we just shake the camera, but, but pretty much all these launches and things like the X-15 at the beginning, the shaking you see is uh, the actual shaking of that craft. Of course, that little trick shot you saw there—that's not Ryan and Christopher Abbott actually being kind of turned upside down that's or right side up rolling. there. That's the camera doing that, but it's timed with the craft shaking, stopping, and a certain reaxis of the craft. I know the craft—the camera did like a 90 degree, and the craft helped with an additional 15 degrees or so. So you wind up getting that that really vertiginous feeling of a full right side up kind of maneuver, but it's not quite as gnarly for the people involved as it looks. And again, what's so great is everything you see out the window, 
That's all LED screens. That's all captured in camera. Even this, I mean, you know, it's sort of the, you know, camera-mounted stuff. This would just be our craft in front of the LED screen. Yeah. And those images were later then touched up in post, but it gives you the in-camera reflections, gives you the in-camera lighting that you're getting from the LED because um, the LEDs are bright enough to actually act as light sources. Um, so you can kind of uh, sort of treat it like, uh, like the real thing. So one thing in terms of what Tom said earlier was, uh, you know, this tells you a little bit about Damien's vision, which is that from the very outset, we talked about that he wanted to be entirely in the cockpit for the X-15, entirely in the cockpit for that first Gemini 8 launch. Like, he didn't want to go away from those guys as a way of how do you differentiate this from what you've seen before? How do you actually make people feel those launches, feel that cockpit? And then we talked about how the rest of Gemini 8, we would then bop around in a traditional Apollo 13 style, if you will, where we'd go to mission control. And, and obviously, it's not shot Apollo 13 style, but just in, this, in, in terms of the intercutting. You go to Janet with the squawk box. You go to mission control to help you tell the story of docking and rendezvous. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, big, the big model that Tom and I used for that stuff was uh, uh, United 93 and Captain Phillips and some of these Chris Rouse uh, Greengrass collaborations where you, you, you sort of... Uh, um, those are such virtual, like virtuosic examples of cross-cutting to me from different geographical. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, brilliant cross-cutting on on their part, but also, also in a kind of a very visceral, raw sort of way. But what's great is what I love about this whole section is there are it's it's a section of contrasts, you know. So you have the lead up to the launch, which creates the suspense. Then you have the launch, which is violent, bombastic. It's very, it's, it's, uh, you feel like you're being shaken around in, in a, in a sardine can and it's loud. Eiling's sound of the launch yeah, is, yeah. Is, is deafening. And then it gets, it turns into something different where it's graceful and quiet. And by the time you cut outside of the craft, it's completely quiet. Yeah. And this whole scene plays with those contrasts. Um, pictorially and sonically, and I think to me that's really that was should, a lot of fun to work on. Yeah, and I should mention real quick just the uh, the sort of entirety of the sound team because a lot of the sort of an actual kind of tactile sounds of suits and craft noises and what are all actually a lot of them authentic collected over the course of many months by uh, Frankie Montano who worked with Eiling to create this sort of bevy of sound and then John Taylor mixed it all with Millie Morgan working on dialogue uh, which meant also including getting a lot of real comms which you hear in the mission quite a bit here. Sometimes you're hearing our actors but sometimes you're hearing real comms. So it was this sort of multi-process sound endeavor. And I remember and, uh, yeah. well I remember on, on set for Mission Control you guys recorded all these tracks. I had 24 tracks of audio because almost every actor in Mission Control, every man was mic'd. Yeah, it was a nightmare for sound, and that was a nightmare for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm well, sorry about that, Josh. Because Damien, you had to write every piece of dialogue yeah. that every, every man in Mission Control... told me, like, Control, like yeah. a month or two in advance, or maybe it was the month before prep, like he wanted to shoot Mission Control like Greengrass had shot, you know, United 93. I don't think you, I told you a month before. I think was, I gave you some time. Maybe it was... Well, I, I probably ignored you for a month. I, I think you ignored it wasn't me. True. I think just, yeah. You, <laughs> hope, you hoped it would go the way of... hoping it would go away because <laughs> it meant that I had to write stuff for everybody in Mission Control, which is like eight different desks, you know, across five scenes. 
So and everyone had to have something to say because you never knew what the camera was going to. And you pick were going to shoot it and let it play out like a, a stage play. Like a stage play, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's like it's basically it was forty pages of additional dialogue, and the worst part right, was it's sort of eight stage plays going at the same time yeah. was right. the problem. So it's kind of they they occasionally have to time up. We had to re- re- rehearse it sort of like a yeah we rehearsed it on a Saturday like a, uh, yeah the Saturday before. And we had Rick Houston and Rick Armstrong and Mark Armstrong and Andrew Armstrong all right. in there. So we had, and, and people who had been flight controllers as well. Uh, yeah, Rick, everyone who there who wasn't a principal under, actor under were, were, were uh, yeah, sort of former NASA engineers or flight yeah. control, actual pilots, flight controllers, whatnot. So, so we had a lot of help. But the, so that but, helped. But the nightmare and the reason I kept ignoring Damien is there actually is no transcript for the flight director to the mission control. So yeah. I was going to have to write it all from scratch. So, and I didn't know where to begin. And eventually Dave Scott put me in touch with Jerry Griffin, who had been GNC, uh, the GNC flight controller for this mission. And Jerry literally walked me through each of the desks at each of the moments and gave me rough, this is what they would be talking about. And then I wrote dialogue, and then he corrected it, and then I wrote, rewrote it, and then he corrected it. And that's how, you know, but it was literally, it was a total, so I basically procrastinated, procrastinated, procrastinated until it was like a week before shooting. And maybe it was probably three weeks before because it took a while, but yeah, that was my nightmare. And so brilliantly captured by Linus and company. Just shot like a documentary, shot Cinema Veritas. Oh, yeah, so it's gorgeous. Every every take I had of Mission Control was different, something different. Yeah. And I just remember getting the footage, and I it was some of the most beautiful footage I'd ever seen. It reminded me of what I think, Damien, you and I talked about. We talk about Frederick Weissman. We talk about other documentary uh, filmmakers. And, yeah, uh, the Robert Drew docs and things Robert like Drew that, docs. Crisis and whatnot. Yeah. It's a lot of fun to, to cut that stuff. You look at You look and select the footage very differently than than you would on La La Land or Whiplash. It was tough to winnow it down, too, because, uh, yeah, it was some of my favorite stuff in the movie. But too. It, uh, yeah, we could only be there for, you know, several minutes, really, total right. screen time in terms of everything else that, that you're kind of juggling in this sequence. So there were only so many close-ups of uh, Chinese food containers that, that, right. that I was allowed <laughs> to put, you know, I could get away with. Every uh, Chinese food container earned its, earned its take, you know. <laughs> So you see the you know part of the Agena and the Gemini come you know these sort of cross-cut angles. Uh, those again are uh, you know uh, courtesy of Nathan Crowley and his team uh, who sort of built these uh, full-scale or sometimes 80% scale crafts. That's a bigature, uh, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. As opposed to a miniature, yeah, yeah. What he would call it, yeah. That's awesome. And so we'd kind of have those crafts moving towards each other, away from each other, on the LED stage with the Earth on the LED screen, or sometimes just black. Uh, and then Linus had a light always kind of traveling when need be, reflecting, you know, basically uh, uh, simulating the sun. But you wind up also getting these things in camera that are really, again, that are nice, they're sort of anomalies, weird flares, green flares, blue flares. Sometimes in this craft, the, the magazine would jiggle a little bit in terms of small movement, so that's why you get some of those weird anomalies of seeing, like, part of the image refracted elsewhere. You see, like, arm, it says Armstrong kind of floating over Ryan's head. Here you get these weird, you know, you see this sort of strobe effect you get right. on the... It's just all these sort of things that uh, I think we actually really liked and encouraged. 
<laughs> I think those are examples of, of things that we liked and we were open to, which which made selecting stuff very different, again, than on La La Land or Whiplash. Yeah, sort of inviting the accidents a little bit. That's right. Rick Armstrong yeah. right there. Comes up behind Kyle. Have them tell the Soviets that they can go screw them. The wonderful Shea Wiggum. And you'll get a glimpse of Andrew Armstrong. Playing uh, guitar, right? Uh, son of Mark Armstrong, so grandson of Neil Armstrong, uh, striking up the guitar. There he is. Jiminy 8, this is Houston Capcom. Please stand by to copy. Look at my room like this. Look at all these papers. I know. I spent days trying to work on that, and now it's crumbled up. Look at my... Yes, yeah, so there's just a lot of, again, kind of stuff with the kids and Janet was always sort of fun to play with the earlier scene where you see Mark uh, young Mark grab the squawk box from from Janet that was um, that's all that was just uh, yeah I think I remember I told Mark to uh, I, I, I had a lot of fun maybe too much fun kind of telling the kids to go do X Y and Z that would annoy their parents so that was uh, so we were just filming Janet paying very close attention to a tense moment on the squawk box and Mark was offset and uh, I sort of took him aside and whispered to him to run and grab the squawk box and uh, not give it back to his mom, no matter what happened. And, and, and as Mark and so Rick, he ran and did it. Mark and Rick told us Mark was quite rambunctious as a kid, so that was very much in keeping with. I've actually been told that we toned Mark down. Yeah, <laughs> actually, we, we that we sugarcoat the real Mark. Uh, that's probably what Rick would say. <laughs> <laughs> Although Mark always maintains that uh, it was it was it was always benevolent. It was never never with malice. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Well, you never know. This is one of those stories where you read about this, and you can't believe you don't know this story. And I feel like most people don't. You know, this this is a thruster that malfunctions and uh, gets stuck open, and so as a result. Uh, starts these guys into a, a bank and then a spin, uh, mostly roll, but they're full, they're, they're spinning on all three axes. And uh, they actually were able to fight it for a little bit longer. They were out of radio contact for about 17 minutes and were fighting the spin for most of it. Uh, we consolidate it and make it happen a lot faster. But uh, they fought it, they fought it, and finally decided it must be coming from the Agena, which was issue prone. Uh, and then detached from the Agena only to realize it's from the Gemini. And they had no way of knowing that. And so wind up in this uh, spin that goes to one revolution per second, at which point they're pretty close to blacking out. And if they had blacked out, they would have both died up in space. I mean, it was pretty chilling. I remember just talking to Dave Scott about this and, you know, hearing him say point blank, if it wasn't for you know, within a few seconds, if it wasn't for Neola pulling the RCS squibs, that he'd be a human satellite. Remember him using those words. It's the sort of gallows humor that, that sometimes you'd get from the astronauts. And yeah. Setting Agena to allow remote command. Switching on the DLC. The problem is they didn't have, so the OAMS, the OMS thrusters, one of them was stuck open and there was no way to slow it down because this thruster was stuck open so you couldn't go against it enough to slow it down for long enough. And they started spinning at such a speed that eventually they shut everything off, but then they needed something else to slow them down. And the reentry control system, which keeps your tail headed 
towards the atmosphere on reentry so you don't burn up was the only thing they could use. But of course, once they would engage that, they would have to abort the mission. And moreover, if they had used all that fuel, then they wouldn't have been able to reenter the atmosphere without burning up. So it's a, it's a very dicey situation here. And only because Neil remains calm does he able to keep it under control. Three, two, one. This is CSQ checking our comm link. How do you read? There's some speculation that, you know, while, and you see this in the movie, Neil, I think, you know, had a moment of being very worried after this mission that, uh, the, you know, that, that, that it would be deemed a failure and, and, that, uh, and that he would be blamed for, for what happened. And, uh, and that, of course, would have, you know, could have uh, really dire consequences on the rest of his uh, time in the astronaut program. He could be looking at another sort of threat of grounding. Did he say he cannot turn the Agena off? Uh, no, he says he's separated from... There's some speculation that actually the fact of this, this, this mishap and Neil's uh, calm under pressure ultimately became one of the, one of the things that the, uh, the higher-ups leaned on when deciding who was going to go to the moon. That was Mark Armstrong. That's, that's, this is Mark Armstrong playing Paul Haney. Yeah. Uh, turning the squawk the, box off on his yeah. mom. On his own mom. On his own mom, really. which apparently she laughed when he told her that. When he told Janet that he was going to be the one to turn the spot box off on her, yeah, she thought that was funny. <laughs> it's not enough for him to steal it from her. Right, he exactly. Has to then just turn it off. Exactly. Which did happen. I mean, that was uh, uh, Paul Haney uh, did uh, turn uh, it off on Paul Janet. Paul Haney, Mission Control, did yeah. uh, turn it off on her, and Janet did go up to Mission Control uh, to yeah. speak with Deke about it. Was not too pleased. One of the things you saw there in Mission Control, and I think, really, uh, it, we were trying to get at is. They were in the dark. They literally had been out of contact. When Gemini gets back into contact, they are only in contact via uh, the, um, you know, via ship, which is, you know, stationed, you know, where they are as opposed to, because they can't be directly in contact with Mission Control. And so uh, they're literally playing this game of telephone, which can, we, we got the transcript from the Times, and they just can't. They can't help them in any way. Neil's got to figure this out on his own. Some amazing sounds by Ai Lang Lee here. And some amazing cutting by, uh, by Tom. Well, I, I just remember the amount of inserts that we had for this were, were, pretty, were pretty astounding. Um, and of course, all of this had to kind of pass that litmus test later on down the road when, when you guys showed uh, Frank Hughes and Mike Collins and other people, other experts. You yeah. know, we had to make sure that we weren't pressing, you know, that it was passable, that we weren't pressing the wrong buttons and stuff like that. I don't know if this has been done, and you just saw him hit the RCS breakers so he could yeah. use the RCS, the reentry control system, to, to, you know, slow down the spin. But, uh, but yeah, but I... You know, we, we, we decided to uh, bring all of our technical consultants in to watch the cut four weeks prior to picture lock. And not only just to watch it, but also we did a stop-start where we stopped it any time they had an issue. Uh, and we got 10 pages of notes, which we split up between editorial and uh, VFX and ADR. And yeah, everyone, everyone was really glad to get those notes. 
<laughs> that, that was that what was a happy moment. My name was Mud. What I what I remember is uh, Damien, you and I cut the scene in, in a way that we were happy with it dramatically. Thought it made sense, and and then Frank Hughes, we had we had Neil pressing the RCS button, the squibs, and Frank Hughes came oh, man, in and said, "This, that, that this was... all looks really good, except this one thing is when he's pushing the button, he's pushing the talk button." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That was one of those moments where I was like, "How did we not know that?" Right, <laughs> and, and it wasn't it wasn't that Ryan did it wrong or you guys shot it wrong. I feel like it was because we edited the thing wrong. It's funny. I think that was maybe from our, you know, yes, yeah, day, yeah, 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 days yeah. of playing Atari where we just the, yeah. the firing button is the button. <laughs> uh, that's why we have tech consultants. So, yeah, but they were they were really helpful. There was some uh, some good kind of. Uh, in between the the beats, cutting there to uh, recalibrate the, uh, so the, the the handling of that th of that uh, thruster, so it wouldn't right. uh, so it would be connected the way we wanted it to be. Now, well, there's security protocol. Well, I don't give a damn. I've got a dozen cameras on my front lawn, Deke. Do you want me telling them what's going on? Jen, you have to trust us. We so this is a consolidation of two things that actually happened. Janet actually did go to Mission Control and was incredibly angry uh, to try to get them to turn the box back on. Uh, she was held out of mission control. And then a week later, she had a confrontation with Deke, where she said, I mean, some of this is my language, some of it's Janet's, where she literally said, uh, you know, uh, she said, I, I will tell the world if you do this to me again. Um, speaking of language, all this language in here is direct comms, right from the Gemini 8 comms. Because while we didn't have flight director loop, we did have air to ground. Uh, and a lot of what you hear in this cockpit is comms, you know, uh, you know, which to me reveals some great character. This thing about I wish I could argue about them going back down, the thing he said earlier about, uh, about how, um, you know, I don't have time to talk to you right now. I'm too busy. You know, those are all verbatim. And here, we used to have a re-entry. We had a moment where Gemini 8 capsule, we see the re-entry again from the point of view inside the capsule. But I think we felt it was it was uh, almost like a little too similar to the launch in some ways. But uh, I think we should focus on the progress. Yeah, and so we wound up finding that sort of, uh, it was actually kind of a, I forget at what point we found it, but somewhere in the cutting, that kind of, uh, Handoff from one run, one uh, leftward facing close up of Ryan to roughly the exact same scale rightward facing right. um, at the uh, at the press conference. Right, sort of fishing through the angles that we had because it wasn't it wasn't planned that way. But yeah. but I think ultimately we were really happy with uh, with that transition. Yeah, there was no way to know that it's rusty. Well, there was a little bit of that idea of kind of uh, that uh, the Ryan and I talked about early on sort of the, the if you could find a way to communicate again in keeping with the sort of moon in the kitchen sink idea that if you could find a way of communicating the way these guys the way that space and the home life sort of would bleed right. together that they can't help but bleed and once you go up there it's it's sort of uh, you carry space with you and so there's you know it's almost the sort of waking dream aspect where one minute you're in space um, you know floating around the earth and the next minute suddenly you're you blank and you're on the ground. Um, and what do they do while on the ground? Well, they talk about space. Right. They talk about space here in a conference room. They talk about space with beers in the backyard, looking up at the sky, wondering when they're going to go back. Um, and it's just this sort of, uh, 
I don't know. I would imagine it almost contributes to that kind of rootless, sort of disoriented feel. Yeah. Our wild ride. This Ryan, is the kind of would would. I mean, another expression I like that he would use was sort of, uh, you know, that if we did it right, this wouldn't be a movie about someone landing on the moon. It'd be a movie about someone landing on Earth. And that that's the real. That's the real mission. Right. This Life magazine story was actually, that was the title that was pitched. Neil was very unhappy about it. Uh, he actually had this call with Dave Scott at the office, and Dave heard him <laughs> getting, you know, a bit agitated. And uh, we put it at home just to so you could feel out, you know, feel what it does to the family a little more directly. But, you know, just getting a sense of the fishbowl these guys are in from that and also the reporter's questions, which are all, again, verbatim from the actual post-flight interview. Again, just being on such a different page. I married Neil because I wanted a normal life. <laughs> I know. I know. It was just so different from all the other boys on campus. Mm. So great having Olivia here having this relationship between Pat and Jen. Bonnie Bear, who Olivia talked to, literally brought us photos that showed, you know, Janet holding Pat's hand during the Gemini 4 flight. And they're really moving because you get a sense of how close these two women were. Yeah, Bonnie is uh, uh, Ed and Pat White's daughter. I think these women being next door neighbors and just going through the same things got very, very close, which makes what happens to Pat all the more devastating. I think my, one of my biggest takeaways yeah. from working on this is just not only how risky and how dangerous it was for all of the astronauts to go on these missions, but that their families are invariably taken along for the ride. Yeah. Right. Whether they want to or not. Whether yeah. they want to or not. That right. wasn't something I was aware of or thought about before. It right. also wasn't really something that, uh, that I think NASA really took into consideration, at least in the, in the full extent that, that one would hope. Yeah, Jim um, would talk about there often. There casualties that just weren't really, you know, handled or acknowledged. Yeah, Jim would talk about often how isolated they really were, that those pictures you see of all the people around the wise really wasn't the case, certainly not with these Gemini missions, where they would be yeah. alone in these houses with a PAO officer, you know, a public affairs officer, and that was it. You know, it's Ed Cernan's wife famously said, you think it's tough going to the moon, try staying home. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Is what true? Deke pulled me aside and told me that him and Gus won't be on the crew. At the first I love this scene. Yeah. Oh, these guys are all, they're, yeah. they're, they're so, all so good. good in the scene. Jason, Jason and Chris, Chris and Chris Ryan. I actually hate this scene. <laughs> I think it's terrible. <laughs> I, I think the other no, thing I'm I love kidding. about this is that, again, like, I think most people don't know that Gus was supposed to be the guy. Gus was the, you know, he was the guy who Deke wanted to be, if he could make it work, you know, wanted to be the first one on the moon. That he was the, that was the main crew, that's, you know, he was the one guy from Mercury who was still flying, first guy on Apollo 1. And so being... When Ed became part of his crew, which he wasn't originally a part of his crew, but when Ed becomes a part of his crew for Apollo 1, that's a big deal. And, it's and really Ed exciting. himself was kind of the, I mean, 
if you had to pick one almost from that new nine. Yeah. From the second group, the, not the Mercury group. Ed would have made a lot of sense because he was sort of the, the shining knight of that group and, and having been the first American to perform in EVA and... Uh, and just and, good and looking just, and charming. Yeah, just the... I mean, everyone loved him. And I think Jason Clark captures this beautifully in his performance that he just... He was the friend that you want around yeah. when you need a friend. Yeah. He was... Uh, and, and he was a friend, very close friend to Niels. He was a friend to a lot of the other yeah. astronauts as well. You know, just a damn good pilot and an astronaut as well, so... I think there was a certain expectation. This piece, this is one of my favorite pieces of the movie, and this, again, I had very little to do with. Uh, we wrote a swimming pool scene, which just didn't quite work, and uh, this was all improv that Damien and the actors captured, and it's just, I just, when I first saw it, you know, we, we'd always talked about this moment being a moment, you know, the Apollonia moment, right? It's the last moment of happiness before the final straw that breaks Neil and turns him into, you know, someone who can only be focused on the mission. And I think Damien, the actress, just captured so well the beauty of that. I'm not laughing, I'm crying. And I think Justin, you know, Justin Hurwitz's oh, score amazing is extraordinary. Score really, really... Let's sells not, the bittersweet. You know, he doesn't need a big head. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not, not go so far. Now, don't get carried away. Now, this scene was an enormous challenge and, and, and it worked out incredibly well, I think. But, you know, the first version of this scene, we had Neil giving a long soliloquy about an Aronka they had flown and, and, uh, and it didn't quite work on the page. And then we had another soliloquy for Neil and then it just didn't feel right. And, and, and Ryan actually suggested... Uh, giving this, giving Jason something, giving Ed a sort of, and so we drew from, we talked to Bonnie, we talked about his faith, uh, we wrote a bunch of different things, we played around with Jason and Ryan, uh, I think we rewrote this a couple times even, you know, while we were shooting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember it would, it would definitely evolve from take to take. Yeah, and I, I, I remember being there on the day and saying, ah, it's never going to make the movie. And it's, again, it's one of my favorite scenes. This scene? Yeah. You thought this scene would not make the movie? Yeah, just because it was, you know, on, from take to take, you oh, know, it wasn't. Ye of little faith. <laughs> it was a weird night because, uh, you know, by this point, it's like 4 a.m. It was yeah, a it night was shoot. really late. And it was very cold. Right. Um, which, of course, uh, they weren't really allowed to <laughs> showcase because... Uh, we're trying to play this in, in almost summertime. So um, to kind of do this sort of subtle, very delicately emotional scene, with take after take at this hour, it's one of those things you, you hopefully you want to not come across in the movie. But there, was, but there was something, I remember also something about this night. I mean, you see it in the wide shot too, which Lena's sort of lit so beautifully, the sort of augmented moonlight coming from, the, from beyond the trees. You know, there's, there's something... There was something very ghostly about about yeah. the night and how we wanted to shoot it, and and I think it was something that I kind of I started to love the idea of more and more as we were prepping and getting ready to shoot this thing was yeah, just the shot. idea of a ghost story sort of hovering underneath all the the A story in this. This would be a movie about it was something that the moon seemed to speak to, uh, um, uh, you know, just the idea of death looming nearby and. Uh, grief with it and 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 that the people who die don't really go anywhere that there's just a 
you feel their presences, whether it's a, a glimpse of Karen or a glimpse of a swing, um, or, or Ed White on the TV, or a photo of Elliot C. That just uh, the losses accumulate, but they don't. They, they don't never go you. away, yeah. and you never entirely move on. Yeah. And that but, the moon could kind of be a right a way a visualization of that. Yeah, it's it's that quote that Beckett quote about you know uh, how oh, yeah I love that quote how how we manage to you know carry on and on even with these wounds that never leave us. Yeah, I tried to squeeze that quote. I remember I, I tried, tried to, to I tried to get you to squeeze it into yeah the, for the priest at the at the at Karen's uh, wake. It didn't quite work. Which we wound up then playing without, without dialogue. But yeah. it's somewhere there in the outtakes. Oh, you shot <laughs> it. I remember it. Yeah, you remember it? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of this language is verbatim. There's, uh, there's actually tape of this. So it's um, from online. transcribed from the, from the tapes. Yeah, well, you, and you yeah. can listen to you the listen tape to online. It, yeah. it's, on, it's on YouTube. It's chilling. Glad you think this is funny. You know, I thought these guys played this so well. I mean, they, there isn't that much dialogue, but... Well, we, we've got some good cameos. Ah, there's Damien's parents right there. I should hope so, given the yeah. Spent That's probably the most important point in the movie. You should have had your father play guitar in this scene. If I had known he played guitar, I would have... Well, we'd already had jazz. our guitar moment in the Mission mis Control. That's you know? true. That's yeah. true. If you consider the your old friend Senator, <laughs> I don't know what his real name. Is. No, no, no. But the <laughs> actor. No, but he modeled. Uh, oh, now I'm blanking. Uh, Char this actor is Charles Carroll. Yeah. A wonderful uh, LA-based actor uh, who. Um, he modeled it after a real he, senator. He modeled this performance after a. Uh, and now I'm totally blanking on the name, which is embarrassing. But it was yeah. a real senator at this time who was kind of very. Uh, That's right. On the fence about uh, there, the space program. There uh, were a lot of senators. Had a voice just like that. Yeah. yeah Mondale, One of many. Yeah. There, there were a lot of senators who had real issues and. Uh, Again, it's not something that's well known. And also that this literally happened this way. They were at the White House for the signing of the Treaty on Outer Space, which is a treaty that said that space would be a peaceful, you know, no one country would lay claim or, you know, um, which was an odd thing to be doing in the middle of the Cold War and an odd thing for them to be doing at the time when this was happening. Not particularly odd. I mean, they were always in the barrel like this, you know, pushing the program, but uh, odd given what happens. Yeah, for Neil to basically find himself, of all places, at the White House when uh, yeah. when this occurred. You can't talk between two or three buildings. <laughs> you tell him, Gus. You tell him. now, shit. I got a surge in the AC bus two voltage. Car resetting the meter. You getting this, Gus? This was the, was this the first day of shooting for Shea? Some people like Shea and... Uh... No, no, it was the first no. day shooting. It was the last day shooting for Shea. It was the first day shooting in a space capsule. In a space capsule. Yeah. 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 And it was, yeah, it wasn't an easy day. I remember Shea talking about it being very claustrophobic. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Uh, I think it was hard for all these guys. I think especially this scene because it was our first time as a crew shooting in, this, in a space capsule. And so to begin with a scene like this, it was... Uh, it's a, you know it's a difficult scene for many reasons obviously but um, but you know I remember uh, those guys basically sitting in a, in that craft for about five hours before we got a shot off um, right and so you just start to feel feel that claustrophobia which I mean of course is sort of what we were trying to capture 
in the film, but the, uh, the weight was not by design. But it wound up being almost par for the course for a lot of the uh, spacecraft shooting in the movie. It was very slow. The rest of the movie uh, was shot pretty fast. I mean, we were really kind of running and gunning and trying to kind of move in that documentary style, very fleet on our, on our feet. But uh, once, we, once we sort of broke for our winter break hiatus and came back to do all the spacecraft material and soundstage stuff, uh, everything slowed down quite a lot. I remember the first two days we barely got a shot off and I, uh, I started to lose my mind. <laughs> but, you know, in a way it was like how could we try to find a way to, uh, while doing these this sort of technically demanding space material, find a way to keep the sense of, uh, just the sense of spontaneity and purity and, and actor-centric focus that this first part of the movie, you know, first part of shooting felt like, you know, where we could you know, this, this is a scene that, you know, where I find Ryan's performance breathtaking here. But um, I was just going to say, his tried. performance here is yeah. extraordinary. It's amazing. And, but I, and, and I remember also, uh, and, you know, Kyle was there, even though he's just on the phone. He was just there in the other room. So, so I actually, you know, we were able to play around even in this scene where, you know, Kyle would sometimes say a little bit more. Ryan would react a little bit more, a little bit less. We would try different timings on when the glass would break. So, you know, just even being able to do little little calibrations or little changes in the scene to keep, uh, and certainly the way Ryan likes to work, I love to work that way, of just trying to, you know, that, that you never take anything for granted, trying to always keep discovering, keep excavating, keep seeing what you can make better. Sometimes you don't want to make it better, but but at least you've tried, at least you've sort of gone somewhere. And uh, it's hard, and I think our big challenge was to sort of maintain that kind of style once we were on sound stages. This uh, footage, we recreated it, but it's actual. You can see this footage. They did a long broadcast on CBS the night of the Apollo 1 fire, and they ran footage of the guys, and which we recreated, and, you know, I had other footage there, too. pretty amazing because you Nathan Crowley built this LLTV which you basically you guys hung from a crane right a full-scale mm -hmm. mock-up that you hung from a crane so you're really doing these are physical effects here and there's a there's a guy a stuntman in those wide shots there's a stuntman in there right yeah it was never a dummy so it's right. a guy in there so he could move and maneuver with it But yeah, he just did an amazing job, and we would hook cameras up inside. And then, of course, it's combined then with a lot of this footage is Ryan, combined with Ryan, who we shot both against an LED screen and also on, like, a 10-foot-high or 20-foot-high platform. And about a gimbal, with, right? again, Yeah, on a gimbal. Both times, both against LED and on the platform on the field would be a gimbal. And then here is a parachutist jumping from a plane timed with, with uh, this with explosion. explosion. Um, so this is another, uh, another incredible uh, stunt double who did that jump for us. This is Ryan right here, uh, right. going through the uh, going through the weeds. This is all Ryan. See, so, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, R Ryan did everything he could do, and then um, and then we would mix and match with uh, with some of the stunt team. But yeah, we had an amazing stunt coordinator in the film, an amazing stunt team who just obviously had to uh, accomplish some pretty difficult stuff in conjunction again with the special effects team as well, who uh, kind of created this this fiery wreckage for us on set. 
Neil, uh, if Neil had waited two-fifths of a second longer to pull the ejection uh, to trigger the Weber ejection seat, he would have died. It's another thing you can find on YouTube, actually, just a pretty shockingly clear footage of, uh, of that LLTV crash um, from a camera just on the ground. And you see it start to, you see it start off going quite normal, uh, uh, then start to pitch, and, uh, and then eventually you see the ejection as it plummets. This is another little cheat, his face here. Uh, Neil, in fact, bit his tongue real bad and had some chigger bites. Um, but the, neither of the, but, and not to mention his back would have been killing him because the, uh, the G-forces are like, it's like 14 Gs, one of those Weber ejections. When you eject, yeah. But, you know, none of that shows up. So we decided to mess up his face a little bit so that it was, could be clear that, you know, this was pretty dangerous. He almost died. I always love this moment that feels like it's uh, it's almost a a ghost story or a horror film yeah. or something with the autumn leaves and uh, I just love this shot you picked up of the of the newspapers the unread newspapers just strewn about yeah. We asked Rick about Pat you know, who uh, who took her own life much later, but also, and it's not entirely clear, but certainly uh, almost OD'd on uh, some pills shortly after Ed died. And Rick basically said, you know, after, after Ed's death, Pat just wasn't there. Literally, she'd be up in her house, but, like, not present in any way. And... The combination of Olivia's wonderful work and then and then I just love what Claire does here, where you truly feel, you know, what's going on. That's why it was so great to have to really focus on their relationship, Claire and Olivia's performances before, because you really feel the contrast here. Yeah, again, I was just trying to, you know, you, you want to get some sense of the actual human loss. That, that uh, you know, I, I think Pat White is a great example of a, a kind of a, a sort of you could argue a casualty of, yeah. of this mission to the moon, yeah. this overall program to the moon. That who who didn't get her due, you know, who doesn't, who who isn't sort of necessarily acknowledged in the uh, in hey. the history books uh, of the mission to the moon. But this is part of how costly it was. It wasn't just about the money or the resources. Yeah. That this. Uh, it, it, killed people it also uh you could argue destroyed people crushed them split yeah. families apart yeah um and uh yeah i think we all just felt that that wasn't necessarily talked about enough yeah i think there are uh, a high percentage of divorces among astronauts and you know yeah out of the apollo program it was uh, over three quarters yeah and like when you see the pressure these families were put under it's not surprising I love the sequence. Uh, we, we had originally, I had written some stuff, but none of that wound up in the film. I mean, we'd written stuff to suggest that there were questions, you know, over radio and whatnot, but uh, which of the editors found the Vonnegut footage? It's Derek, right? I think Derek, Derek Druin, one of our, our first assistants, found this amazing interview with Kurt Vonnegut, and that's uh, Arthur that's C. Clark, awesome. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, so what you, what you don't see in, in that full broadcast, uh, Kurt Vonnegut is there opposing the space program. Arthur C. Clarke is defending it. And so it was a televised debate, basically, between them. Yeah. 
Um, and then this is Leon Bridges uh, performing a Gil Scott Heron track um, from uh, from around this time, um, which uh, which Ryan found. Um, uh, I wasn't familiar with the track at first, and this this was early on in prep. Um, you know, again, as you were saying, Josh, we we had other material here yeah. that was sort of making similar points about you know kind of articulating what the what the opposition uh, uh, was arguing um, and uh, to, to to the space program at the time, and uh, but this track just distilled it in such yeah. a compelling, Fantastic. beautiful uh, way, and in a way that's uh, you know it's sort of hard to argue with. So so this is the actual crawler transporter. This is one of the few scenes we got to shoot down. Uh, at at Kennedy Space Center on the Cape. Um, yeah, they were very kind to let basically bring this crawler back out for us and move it sort of back and forth on the pad by the VAB building for us amazing. to uh, for us to shoot it. Uh, um, and then the uh, and then we the VFX team the added rocket, uh, basically yeah. shot a miniature of the uh, rocket and and put it on top for the final shot in the scene. I love this scene. It was a, it was something we wrote late to add in some dialogue that was pulled from a diner scene. We put it in Buzz's mouth again. Only speaks the truth here, right? It's all true, but something that nobody wants to hear. Hell of a rocket. Yeah. Everything stays on track. Eleven's going to be the landing. I talked to Bob. Everyone's in agreement. We'd like you to command. Neil was told about uh, that he was going to command Apollo 11 during Apollo 8. Uh, so that's accurate. The bathroom of it all, we just love the sort of how these huge events in history happen at these, you know, sort of in these mundane ways. Happens in the bathroom. Yeah. So anticlimactic. Yeah. And, of course, the real moment Neil knows that he's actually going to the moon, they all know, is when Apollo 10 returns safely because then... That's the real moment when you know that that he's going to be the first one on the moon. It could have very easily gone other ways. He, even 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 once he got the uh, command for Apollo Eleven, right. you know, ten could have uh, been an incomplete mission or aborted or whatnot, or been shifted in terms of priority. And so Eleven could have become what ten was doing, or yeah. you know, so on and so, and so forth. Twelve, thirteen, any of those could have been the first landing. Um, right. But uh, but as you hear Cronkite describe here, ten. Uh, uh, did what it was expected and, and, and supposed to do, and uh, that led to 11, Neil's mission being the, being the landing, or the first attempt to land. Your dad's going to the moon. Okay. Can I go off? I can't remember if this was your idea or mine, Damien. I think it might have been your and yours, but, but just this idea of, like, you know... Uh, it's uh, it's one of my favorite little scenes. In the but the movie. kid the kid doesn't yeah. isn't really blown away by the fact that yeah. his dad is going to the moon. Yeah. Yeah. Every flight took on new objectives and left us with. A lot of this is verbatim. I love this speech of Neil's because it's what he really felt. I think that that you know he'd always say it was four hundred thousand people who, and they were just sort of the tip of a very long spear. And all these reporters' questions are uh, uh, verbatim as well, sometimes from different uh, uh, different interviews. Yeah, yeah. Um, but consolidated. But, uh, right, consolidated. But um, 
All questions that Neil was asked. Wasn't that first one Anthony? Uh... Yeah. Yeah. Your friend from Spotlight. Yeah, he's 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 good. That guy is good. This scene was. I love the footage for this. This was fun for us to work on. Again, beautiful Ferrite coverage, and I love seeing all the. I don't know how you guys found all the vintage camera equipment and uh, stuff like that. It's kind of fun to see the the art direction. Well, also just, I mean, speaking of our direction, this bizarre contraption that they put the astronauts in for this, this sort of... This uh, little contains uh, box uh, where they were... Blow the air out. Blowing so the that, air out so that they wouldn't so catch that, any uh, flu germs. Yeah. One little piece of the scene that we, we cut out, um, but we did shoot, is uh, when they first came onto the stage, they were, they were wearing gas, gas masks. masks. Um, it was a little bit of a sort of gag, um, uh, but... Um, but they but actually it did add it. to the weirdness yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that more fuel line also is a that's a Neil. I Neil can't take baby. credit for that. That's that's Neil. I thought you were going to talk to the boys. What did you want me to say? What do you want to say? So there's a good story here. So I was very nervous about showing the scene to Rick and Mark because Rick, I sent him the final sort of, you know, the the final corrected version of the script to meet the, the uh, cut as we had it four weeks before, picture lock. And Rick sent me an email, just a couple comments on the script, and one of them was, I don't think mom would have dropped the F-bomb, right? And so I'm very nervous to show them the scene in the stop start because Janet, of course, drops the F-bomb, and, uh, and I was convinced I was, they were going to make, make us try to change it. Uh, and... Uh, we play the scene, and I stop it, and I look at Mark and Rick, and they basically both smile, and they're like, we can't argue with that, <laughs> just because Claire's performance is so dynamite. And moreover, they felt like this was a good approximation of, you know, the kind of argument that, that Neil and Janet might have had. She's so strong. I mean, Janet was so strong. Strong as horseradish, uh, as Neil's brother Dean said. <laughs> Is that what he said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strong and, as horseradish. And Claire just embodies that so well. Yeah. Where they're, they're both so incredible in this scene. And Damien, I remember Ryan, we spoke a, a couple times with Ryan. He came in a couple yeah. times and we all looked at stuff. And we really milked the scene to get the best possible moments out of out of both of them certainly but I it was remember. definitely interesting kind of working with uh working with both ryan and claire often together in these scenes because they're very different actors they they come at it from very different methods you know ryan ryan really likes to for example it could be as simple as ryan likes to look at playback he likes to uh, not all the time but but often will like to look at stuff and then he'll watch rushes as we're shooting just so he can kind of keep track of where he is as a character and what 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 he feels he's expressing well what he feels he's not expressing well and what he can improve on and then that carries through to the edit you know he, he would like to come into the cutting room right um and uh, uh certainly was you know anytime i needed him or wanted to get his opinion on a take or, or or a scene um it was very readily available and claire is exactly the opposite in the sense that she you know anytime ryan would go off to playback i'd offer her the same thing and she'd say oh god no god no like almost right. as though it would be torture for her to have to look at herself right um and uh and similarly did not want to come into the cutting room you know, wanted to wait till the film was finished. So it's much more of a sort of do the job and and kind of send it off. Right. Um, and uh, and uh, you know, so it was really interesting, kind of seeing them sort of develop a methodology together. 
they wound up sort of meeting each other in the middle a little bit because so many of these scenes were sort of dependent on both of them. So like that big scene in the office and the whole kind of scene leading up to that, um, you know, th- our sort of rehearsal for that scene, so to speak, was like a four-hour, the three of us kind of talking it out on set. We just cleared the set and sort of talked uh, for a while about every sort of different aspect of the scene. And then we just started doing it and, and we'd try different things and Claire would try different things and Ryan would try different things. Sometimes Ryan would be completely silent. Sometimes he would engage. Claire sometimes would uh, uh, become super emotional. Other times she would hold it in. Sometimes with tears, sometimes without, sometimes angrier, sometimes sadder, and just um, uh, just sort of playing it every which way um, for the whole length of that night. Um, and, uh, you know, this scene was shot separately, a uh, separate day, but kind of similarly here, there was, there was uh, stuff that we played with um, that, uh, in this case, we didn't wind up using. There was a moment where, where uh, I had Rick, uh, who's the, you know, uh, Rick sitting across from his dad, kind of not accept his dad's uh, answers and, and sort of keep pushing him. I remember that. Asking him why, why, why. Um, Luke Winters here, who plays uh, Rick, was so amazing. Again, kid who'd never been on a film set before. Just really sort of uh, uh, grilled Ryan. But you kind of actually get that anyway, just in his look. It's such a beautifully written scene. Well, it's funny, Josh. It's funny because this scene is is a lot. This one's pretty close to the text, whereas the the last scenes with Claire and Ryan, uh, the the fight is sort of half of what I written wrote and half of the half ad lib. And in fact, I wasn't on set that day, and I remember Isaac Klausner calling me from set and saying, "Well, you know, there's a lot of ad lib." And so when I watched the dailies, I watched it with the sound off of the fight, and I loved it. I loved, I could see from the performance, like, oh, this is great. And I, I called Isaac, I said, I don't care what they're saying. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, but this scene at the dining room table was a scene we went over with Rick and Mark a bunch, because this actually happened. Uh, I'd originally said it in the bedroom, they're like, no, 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 it was the dining room table, which was odd, because we never went to the dining room. Uh, they sat at the dining room table, and a lot of what was talked about, we really went over with them. And in fact, that thing Neil says about, you know, there are risks, but we have every confidence. Like, that's something that apparently Neil actually said at the very top of that scene because Janet had very much wanted him to, uh, to tell them that there might be a chance he wasn't coming back. I think if that scene works, it's in large part because, you know, Rick and Mark really helped us get it there. Two of her sons into the unknown. In this contingency statement, that's... That's based on uh, that's a real. real thing that you to, that you guys found. Yeah, so this is one of those things, you know, anyone in the space community knows about this. It's really great lore. It was written by William Sapphire, and it was written because the astronaut who was the liaison, and I think it might have been Cernan, I can't recall, but the guy who was the liaison to the White House had basically said, you should write a couple contingency speeches because we're not quite sure what's going to happen here, right? And this was one of, like, four or five... Uh, that he's suggested that said, you know, it's possible they get to the moon, can't get back off. And so it was written. It wasn't actually shared with Gilruth and uh, Deke at the time, so we take a little liberty there, but it was written, uh, and they had it on hand just in case, and we just thought it would be such a great way of framing this trip and reminding you that they really didn't know. 
Yeah, to the extent to which, I mean, you could see uh, that little glimpse you see of Buzz uh, signing an envelope and handing it over to Deke. Um, those were insurance and, covers. Yeah, because they couldn't get life insurance. So those, those were to, to be held by the family, and if they would have perished, those would have been worth quite a bit. They still were worth quite a bit, but... Uh, this is Chris Kelly, um, whose father uh, actually drew the drew in that, that sketch, style yeah. those sketches uh, the morning of. So we had Chris come in and do it for us. That breakfast scene was one of the my favorite things that you shot, Damien. I mean, I just love the I love the the look of it, the way yeah, the way it's photographed, the way you staged it. It's just it felt so real. And I remember when I was putting this scene together. So eerie about it. It's, it's very it's got eerie. Such a great tone, yeah. like yeah. it's amazing. And there's something also about the suiting up. It feels so real. I remember looking at some of the archival footage of the real breakfast, of the real suiting up, and it was astonishing to me. I mean, what what you recreated. Oh, was thanks, like a, Tom. Well, you know. It's really sweet of you to say. You, you know, do, do, do you, don't mind do, do you do. make sure to say all your nice things when the mics are rolling? <laughs> so you can, because I never hear these are in, we still in the cutting on? room. I, I bet you say that to all the directors. I only say it on the DVDs. Yeah, uh, you say it to all the directors, don't you? I save, I, I save my constructive criticism. Tom, how, do you, how do you feel about the fact the, that, that, that bus, you work with... We missed the bus. The bus that takes them to the, that we use the actual bus, which took the guys to the launch pad. And that shot of them getting into the bus was the actual place where they got into the bus. And in fact, we had Mike Collins and Buzz Aldrin there on the day, uh, which was pretty wild. But, uh... You happy you got that out? I am, I am. I, I really, I, I felt a need. This is an incredible shot here. I don't, somehow you guys recreated this. Has this. You have this footage going up the yeah. elevator, looking through the glass, elevator glass door. Well, it's again, the, the, you know, credit to, well, Nathan Crowley built the sort of uh, elevator rig and, uh, and uh, Paul Lambert, um, Kevin Elam, the Tower VFX team for creating the imagery on the LED screen that we were able to shoot and, and then Lena Sangren, of course, for shooting it. This also is, uh, was sort of a feat by, by Nathan and VFX. This is all shot on top of a uh, power plant yeah. in Georgia. Uh, so we were up high and they kind of transformed part of the roof into the white room and into the capsule here. In a second, you, you will cut outside to see the capsule uh, and, and swing arm separating, basically to see the swing arm. Uh, what's supposed to be happening is the swing arm pulls away from the capsule. But what's what, what I kind of love that they figured out, special effects and Nathan and the team figured out, is actually it's going to be much easier for them visually to shoot the capsule, which Pulling is a lot lighter the... than the swing arm. <laughs> moving away. So the capsule is actually the one moving. We're on a dolly moving away from that swing arm. Incredible. That's amazing. This is a fun little optical trick that... Still gets me. It's all Nathan. And they, they were so detailed. Like on the day, they were literally trying to figure out. You know, we were, we were making sure that the the gate in front of the elevator was correct. And I, they literally had me call Mike Collins to double check. This is internal. Twelve, eleven, ten, nine. This is a small fudge, which is that the window over Neil would have been covered at the time by uh, the launch escape. Uh, system um but we just wanted him looking up at the moon there focused i think what's so great is with, for the gemini 8 sequence you know you designed it to be completely in the capsule and once you did that 
it allowed you for this launch to be completely epic exterior outside kind of monumental just to capture the Saturn V. Yeah, well, it's it's such a majestic rocket, but it was fun also to kind of, in a way, to play in the editing with that juxtaposition between the uber-tight close-ups on Ryan's eyes and these sort of wide shots of this massive contraption rising up into the heavens, almost as though he's guiding it up himself, you know, that, that, uh, and that somehow he's in sync with the firepower. And initially you had this, this trilogy of launches because we're leaving out Apollo 8, which was a, a launch that you saw through the through the glass window. You saw Gorgeous. reflected. Yeah, which our producer Marty Bowen still won't forgive me for having cut. <laughs> but 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 I think you were right because this way this is the first launch we see and it's extraordinary. It really gives you you know a sense of because one of the challenges here with Apollo 11 is you know, not too much. You know that mission was pretty smooth into the landing. Um, and so it always had to be an emotional journey as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, a thrilling action sequence like, like Gemini 8 was going to be. Mm -hmm. I love this shot. And this scene actually contains some 70-millimeter archival footage that Paul Lambert and Kevin Elam uh, found in the NASA archives. Yeah, so that's that's an example right there, which, uh, again, I mean, uh, uh, with that and, and other, some of the other shots, it's, it's it's never just the... It's never only archival. Right, it's like, essentially, they would either extend or, or manipulate but uh, uh, from there, but they were able to use some of this kind of undeveloped 70-millimeter uh, uh, archival footage as kind of a base for certain parts of the imagery to then draw from. And so, so it was kind of a great find to sort of help us uh, piece some of this together. So it's a little bit of a mix, mix of VFX, augmented archival, or something like this, which is purely uh, uh, practical. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a full-scale set uh, up top, right, miniature going away from us, an LED screen of the Earth, uh, which has then been sort of tweaked in post. Okay, we're operating. Uh, this is one of our uh, accuracy nightmares. Is the first the shots we had of TLI. Four we have TLI four weeks before. We had Frank come in and say, "Yeah, that's not right." <laughs> and so we had to do a whole redo on the VFX and the, which which we did, and which it got much closer. We had ADR fixes in here. We had all sorts of stuff. But it's something that now after the fact I'm proud of, even though at the time I, I think, you know. Yeah, for a second I'd forgotten about what the, uh, what a debacle that, that was. <laughs> right. He would almost, almost, those traumatic memories had almost faded into the, into the ether. It's your ship now. Oh, this is beautiful. Yeah, Justin's very angry at me work. for uh, uh, cutting. The, this used to be score. Yeah, and uh, I think it's so good. I think it, I think it was his score. favorite piece of score in the in the, <laughs> in the film. Well, maybe not no. his favorite, but it was. No. You think he just says that to me? To yeah. Make me feel bad. Yeah, yeah. Every cue that that yeah, I try yeah. to cut, he always yeah, says his favorite, favorite piece. piece. Exactly. <laughs> you know, Leonard Bernstein, you know, couldn't stand. You know that that. Uh, you know, when he did the score for um, On the Waterfront, they left out all the best pieces of music. So, you know, that's why it's the only movie you'll ever <laughs> score. Right. 
you know, there's a lot of great wire work here. Uh, this, this, I had someone who, someone I knew saw the film and asked if, uh, if the guys went up, if Damien, if you took him up in the vomit comet, and uh, and I said, no, this is all. I should know. pretend I did. Yeah. Right. Um, well, yeah. I mean, we, we as we were talking about earlier, there was a lot of talk of doing a a vomit comet sequence, sort of vomit comet for vomit comet. But uh, but yeah, this stuff wound up just being wires. But man, it was uh, it was not easy to Hard, shoot. Right. It was uh, and sort of you don't really. We kind of covered it every which way um, because we weren't sure what was going to pass muster or not. I'd say this scene was the hardest of all because you've got all three of them. It's a very tiny capsule that they're in. They all need to be sort of in various states of kind of uh, uh, flotation. It's also sort of emotionally delicate moment yeah. uh, with a prop that needs to float and whatnot. And, um, and it was our first time uh, filming uh, Zero-G. So we were learning as we went. And it was... Uh, it was uh, I probably pulled out more hair that day than, than most. This is again the uh, the Lunar Rhapsody track from Music Out of Moon, which was actually taken to the moon, which Janet liked to think Neil had taken for her, although Neil denied that. Uh, the the burnt smell that Mike talked about earlier was right from Carrying the Fire, from his book. He talked about that there. Uh, and then one of the things I love about this is, you know, Damien, you've talked about this being like the descent of Orpheus, like the Orpheus myth. And I feel like that's how this feels. There's a darkness well, a little to bit, it. yeah. And this visualization, a little bit of uh, kind of what Deke drew on the chalkboard, of just the sense of lateral distance. It's hard yeah. to convey the sheer distance, um, or, or hard to fathom even, for any of us, the sheer distance um, of, uh, of Earth to the moon when you think of orbital space travel as kind of the, the norm. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of important to remember that the idea of people breaking free from orbit and going as far as the moon, that was uh, that in itself, uh, which began with Apollo 8, was such a radical change and departure from, from all spaceflight before it and all spaceflight since it. Um, and so trying to use just those few kind of shots that could kind of communicate some, some aspect of that scope and, and, and then also I think really leaning on, on Justin's uh, score um, uh, and that sort of incredible cue that he that he devised uh, uh, for for the sort of deep space excursion um, yeah it was pretty gorgeous. was pretty crucial I mean here too this th this moment actually we played around with when the score would come in uh, actually score used to come in a little earlier here and we uh, instead wound up playing the sort of emergence of the moon which we always talked about kind of like a ghost ship uh, emerging from from the sea or from night play that silent and then let, or play it with just diegetic sound and then let the score sort of emerge a little bit later. Um, and uh, it was, it sort of spoke to a little bit the issue or, or kind of the, not issue, but sort of the, the you know, it was, it was like the complication that we kept running into with this whole sequence is that Apollo 11 as a sequence used to be, the first cut of this was about 50 minutes. Um, right. And, uh, and we wound up getting it down, you know, having to get it down to, uh, I don't know if the final tally for all of Apollo 11 is 30 or 40 or something somewhere in there. Yeah. And uh, but when we first did that, we wound up in a situation where there were lots of score cues back to back, um, right. unrelated score cues. And so that's one of the reasons why we dropped the cue for the ballet, the sort of sep separation and redocking with the Lamb Ballet that we were talking about earlier. Another reason why we sort of uh, waylaid the uh, uh, score cue for the emergence of the moon till a little bit later in that sequence. 
Um, there used to be, there still is a score cue right here as he kind of goes into the, into the limb, but it's very, very subtle, um, uh, almost inaudible, just more something you feel rather than hear, almost like a heartbeat. This used to be more present. So all these things were kind of either trimmed or shifted or, or minimized because we knew we needed to save ammo for uh, the biggest score cue in the movie, which is the, which the, is the, 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 yeah. the landing cue. Yeah. And that, that great shot going through the Lem Tunnel, that's a, that was a great yeah. wire shot, which you designed in a certain way to have it. It actually, the screen directions flopped, right? Yes, yeah. Ryan's on wires, but it's all upside down. And then... Um, and then, uh, and then the camera does a sort of uh, rotational uh, move that makes uh, everything else look. <laughs> it's sort of we found like the you know even little, little tricks like flopping images or things like that or putting yeah. a camera upside down or things like that could actually could do a ton because really helps sell it because you the intent actually is to sort of confuse the viewer enough in terms of directionality because that's sort of what space does. I mean, once you lose gravity, you lose any sense of up, down, left, right, and it all becomes this sort of amorphous thing. And so right. the more that you can kind of help the camera and the sets do it, sometimes we would even do like that first scene, uh, the scene right before he goes down the Lem Tunnel where he's talking with Lucas Haas uh, playing Mike Collins. Uh, there, they actually aren't on any wires at all. They're just sort of just moving, yeah, kind yeah. of acting like that. But yeah. the set has been uh, clocked right. and, and turned around right. so that it's, again, you know, you're disoriented. You, you get away with it for just that brief scene. Um, Plus, with an object floating by, you know, like the the, the film the casters and things, yeah, you know, yeah. just the uh, camera back, things like that can hopefully do just enough to help sell it. Yeah. That's, these comms we hear, this is really. Yeah, a lot of this is real comms. We had Charlie do come in and record one or two things to help us out, but a lot of it is real comms from Charlie Duke from back in the day. Uh, which Millie would pull and then get the sound just right. Millie Morgan, our amazing dialogue editor. And and even that that back and forth with Lucas was uh, was based on real comms. And these are the miniatures again. Or actually, no, I'm sorry, that's a full scale. Like a bigature. Uh, yeah. Well, no, it's not even an eighty percent. Uh, it's it's just a full it's it's full a full scale, scale set. Yeah, oh. this is a, that, that that was a miniature there of the lamb turning away, and I think uh, in the next shot where you see it rotating, it's a miniature. This is this is uh, LED screens, you know, so you get those reflections. That's a miniature right there, um, just on a black stage, and then you know lots of effects with Linus's light. You know, he 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 uh, he and his team. Um, spent a lot of time sort of mapping out what the light moves would be. Uh, of the sun, essentially, around the craft, and so they'd have it on a, on a, on an arm, constantly circling around the craft at, at the various rates and angles that we needed. Right. And so it was really it was tricky to kind of choreograph all of that, sort of choreograph the movement of that light with where we needed to be on the LED screen, with what kind of movement and angle the 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 capsule had to be in terms of you know sitting on the, on the motion control system on the gimbal, and then that all being choreographed with what dialogue we needed to be said when. Yeah, the, the the dialogue and all this, you know, I wrote a first version, which was a lot of Josh makeup and, and the tech advisors. There was so much Josh makeup in early drafts that we devised a, uh, uh, an acronym. <laughs> we just called it JMUs. JMUs. And so uh, oftentimes on set, <laughs> Capricorn you would just sort of turn and go, uh, is that a JMU? That's, yeah, exactly. And, so uh, so my yeah. first draft of this had a lot of JMUs, and I got 
knocked pretty hard by Dave Scott and Jim and, and Collins and and uh, and Rick and Mark. And so I actually went back. There's a great site online called First Man on the Moon where you can actually listen to the flight director loop and the air to ground loop uh, as you're watching the landing and seeing what Neil was seeing through the window. And uh, that and then the Apollo Lunar Flight Journal and Apollo Lunar Surface Journal, which actually spelled out the comms and told you what was happening, all super helpful and useful. And I went, went back to where I think the script is 80% real comms with just a little bit of hamburger helper here and there to help you understand what's happening. Does that mean like 20% JMU? <laughs> maybe less, maybe less. I feel like we don't call things that are just sort of clarified versions of the real thing GMUs. Yeah, though. correct. I think to qualify as a GMU, it's got to be a full on. Yeah, has to be pretty full on Buck Rogers. <laughs> you know, I do love that turn. I mean, Buck Rogers. The, the, the move of the of the of the capsule is is uh, sorry of the limb is a is a that turn is a is, is sort of how it moves, which is really wild to see what they would be seeing through their window as it flips over so they can position the land. Yeah, that was that weird thing. It took me a while to like to to <laughs> while of us talking about it to really figure out how it would work, what they'd be seeing. You know, the, the, this idea that for the longest part of the flight they'd be seeing sort of as though they were face down right. on the lunar surface, right. um, and having to kind of guide the craft that way. Then they would roll, and so they would just see space, the black of space, for a and certain period of time. And then only kind of at the tail end. Uh, you know, this, this sequence that you see here, do they start to see what, you know, uh, something somewhat analogous to what a pilot sees when they're going in to land a plane. Right. And so it's another another part of the kind of, yeah. like what can I, I can imagine the difficulties might have been. So, of course, the here they done. see that their landing area, which was not what their landing area was supposed to be because there was a little excess oxygen in the in the dock, and when they undocked, it sort of kicked them a little bit. So uh, their landing area, they're in the wrong, slightly wrong place. There are a lot of rocks, and so now they're going to have to clear West Crater, which is going to put them in a fuel problem. And so this is where we just add a little bit, like, you know, to explain, like, okay, they're getting close to their bingo call, which means they're 20 seconds from mandatory abort. Or before, when they saw the first 1201 code, uh, where they're getting close, you know, where the fact that neither of them knows what that is at that moment. This sequence, as was the case with a few of these sequences, I mean, we had uh, Justin composed uh, the score ahead of time, ahead of shooting, or at least some sort of, I mean, the score would wind, would wind up getting adapted, but some sort of version of what you're hearing now is sort of a rough orchestrated mock-up. And then, and I, I worked with uh, uh, this uh, archival editor, Peter Dowd, uh, to, to sort of create animatics using sort of storyboards and archival, uh, pieces of archival, to sort of create like a, a previs, essentially, for right. a, a sort of- kind of a map for Rough this. previs, yeah. Which was an amazing, I'd say, starting point for us in some ways. And a lot of it is actually very, some of the scenes, like this This one is is very close to, I think, what you had kind of prevised with the animatic. Um, especially because it was, it's so, it so rides on the music, you know? Right. 
Yeah, there were certain sort of built-in beats musically right. and visually that we knew we had to hit, and so kind of working on this, it was about sort of, uh, it was almost that the metronome had been set, the tempo had been set, and we had to kind of make sure to hang the scene on that. Right. We couldn't really deviate from that too much. Shut down. Good trivia question. First thing set on the moon, contact light. We copy it down, Eagle. Yeah, that's why you needed me to put that in? Yeah. That's why exactly. it's important to get in. Houston. Mm-hmm. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. And that's actually Charlie Duke with that famous line. Bunch of guys about to turn blue. And they were, of course, about to turn blue because they had no idea what was going on or why he had switched to manual or all they could see is that the craft was running out of fuel. This was a great moment, Damien, that you always kind of set up in the animatic to kind of build up to the hatch moment, you know. You wanted to build the sound up so it would kind of crescendo and then... You know, it would kind of go into this, I think we always talked about it being kind of a Wizard of Oz moment where you cross the threshold from, you know, black and white sepia to Technicolor. In this mm. case, we go into... Yeah, we go from, from 16 to IMAX. Um, so actually, this is probably our grainiest. We sort of push the 16 here so you really feel the grain. And then you uh, burst out the hatch and you're in IMAX and uh, uh, the aspect ratio changes to fit the IMAX and... And the whole idea was, yeah, to kind of, um, could we find some sort of visual way to communicate to the audience what it might have felt like to, uh, to step onto, uh, step onto the surface of, of the moon. You had this idea for silence here early on, which I think was brilliant. And it's pretty incredible to be in the theater when this happens. I think people, some people panic in the theater. They're yeah. used to the sound being sucked out. Sound went out. Our first test screening of this, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, w when this happened, a few, you know, I don't know, 30 seconds in, you heard, uh, uh, I heard someone go, uh, what happened to the sound? But yeah. then what was, and I was kind of expecting that, but then what was amazing is someone answered. Right. The person. So another uh, a woman kind of on, on another side of the theater kind of called back. That's how it's supposed to be. And uh, there is no sound in space. Yeah, they like said something like that. And then and then uh, and then it kind of quieted down for a little bit and then and then there was another repeat. The first person sort of repeated. Where's the sound? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then eventually people started just shushing them. And then and then the sound came back, you know, right. Right, right. started hearing breathing. Some breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank the Lord cuz it was about to turn into a to a tricky scene, you know, moment. <laughs> anarchy. It's about to turn into anarchy, yeah. There's a whole debate on the Lunar, uh, the lunar uh, Surface Journal about whether this LEC cord was used as a tether, which they ultimately decided it was, and Frank Hughes uh, verified that for me by showing me the actual mission plan, <laughs> for which he had, had kept for 50 years, uh, which showed that he was supposed to use the LEC what did they think uh, it was used for? Oh, it it's, it's used to convey, right, the Hasselblad and everything else, but the idea that it would be used as a safety tether oh, oh, right. while he's going down, that was the question. 
And this is actually Ryan Gosling's voice for all of this, which uh, we kind of, in terms of the pauses and the pacing, we really tried to match the actual recording of Neil Armstrong. And then Millie, of course, did an amazing job of futzing it and and uh, treating it so it would sound like it was Neil's real calm. So it would sound very fine, very, very <laughs> fine. And you guys, Damien, you shot this in a rock quarry at night, right? Uh, yeah, this was uh, this was a big rock quarry that uh, that Nathan Crowley and his team uh, sculpted, essentially to look like the lunar surface. Um, and we shot it at night uh, with a giant light off in the distance, simulating the sun, which had a habit of burning out. Uh, the first night got cut short because the light essentially exploded. The whole set went dark. And we kind of looked off in the distance and saw this like trail of smoke rising from where the light was that we could barely make out. Then I think the next night we came, it blew up again. But then it started working. And then, and then uh, as soon as it started working, then uh, it started snowing. And we had what I'm told is the worst snowstorm in Atlanta history. <laughs> snowing on the moon then, basically. Yeah, we do have outtakes somewhere of Buzz Aldrin coming down the ladder in snow. Uh, right, right when it started, uh, and then we, so we stopped shooting, and then, uh, and then we uh, we basically had to shut down for uh, a week. I mean, we had to go shoot other stuff for about a week because the uh, once the snow stopped, then we had to wait for the set to thaw. I mean, everything you see here, including the lem, was uh, a winter wonderland. <laughs> uh, so we came back, and there's that light that kept blowing up. But it blew up because it's the biggest film light ever used on a, on a film set. I love how you do so much here, not just, you know, it's not just that you're in IMAX, but also, like, you're in Steadicam now, which we haven't been in the whole movie. And you're, you know, you have a lot more wides and medium shots. It really just, you break all the rules you've set for yourself for the first two hours of the film, and you break them all. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah, it's I think the IMAX well, format. <laughs> I Sorry, think the Tom, I'm, you were saying. No, you're interrupting me just like Mission Control interrupted Neil on the comms. That, um, that is funny that they interrupted him. You hear a little bit of that in, in there. I think the IMAX format is great here because it also invites you to hold on these shots. So, you know, that's the other thing is this plays out so differently than what's come before. Um, I think the one thing that you double down on is, is, you know, the subjective nature. I think those POV shots, you really wanted the audience to feel like it was their hands on the rungs of the ladder. And, yeah, that's um, amazing. That was fun to play with. And those then, of course, amazing. the flashbacks here were things that it's tricky we to played do. around with. Yeah, it's tricky to do some of those POV shots, though, on IMAX because the IMAX camera is so large. big and bulky. And so, um, so you know, we, we would have to kind of position it as close to, uh, to uh, in some cases it'd be Ryan, in other cases Ryan's stunt doubles uh, Adam's uh, uh, body, you know, position it close enough to his head, looking down at his hands, and, and, and he would have to sometimes kind of position himself in a weird way to allow room for the camera right? so that the whole thing winds up looking essentially like his POV, yeah. something that's easier done with smaller cameras but with a giant IMAX camera on a crane um, it's really was, hard. Was, uh, was tricky, especially given that these suits are really bulky and giant as well. I mean, they weigh a ton. 
so these these flashbacks were added in post, um, and I think they just they're incredibly moving. Uh, and this was all improv stuff as well, right? Yeah, this was our first day of um, all that material. Was our first day of kind of quote unquote rehearsals shooting, which yeah, yeah, yeah. again was mainly just sort of gathering the family together and improvising with them. It was by our cabin set uh, in that case with. Uh, the girl playing uh, 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 Karen, Lucy Stafford, um, is the girl's name, and here she had fallen asleep, um, and so Ryan uh, That's carried her off to bed. So this is Little West Crater, and this is the one uh, moment that was unscripted. It was the one moment that wasn't in the mission plan. Neil sort of wandered off to this crater, and no one knows what he did there. And Jim, in his book, after, you know, four years of research, just started to, you know, in hours of interviewing Neil and Janet and everybody else, just started to wonder, would Neil have brought something of Karen's to the moon? Because, you know, it's not unheard of for astronauts to bring mementos and things of that nature to the moon. Uh, and he asked Neil, and Neil said no, but Neil also couldn't produce the manifest from his PPK which felt unusual. And in fact, that manifest has been found that's under seal at Purdue University now for several years. Uh, will be under seal. Um, so Jim got suspicious and he went and asked June. And June Hoffman, Neil's sister, uh, who knew Neil better than almost anyone in the world, said, oh, I dearly hope so. I dearly hope he took something of Karen's to the moon. So uh, because of that conjecture in the book, uh, we felt uh, a reasonable liberty to take. Um, and sort of fulfills the end of this sort of Orpheus myth of a release, you know, a final release of grief. There's an incredible photo that's taken of uh, Charlie Duke's uh, family. It's like a Polaroid of his family on the, uh, on the lunar surface from his mission. He just put it down on the on yeah. the ground. Yeah, yeah. So it's this kind of it's the strangest sort of photo because it's, you know, if you don't look at it carefully, you could almost not realize it's on the moon. But it's it's uh, but you look at it, you see that it's clearly sort of lunar soil. But this little Polaroid has just been placed right there, right in the center of the frame. And there's just something about uh, I don't know. Speak of, talk of like the moon in the kitchen sink. Something about yeah, the, yeah. The, the the sort of mundane quotidian beauty of this uh, family captured on a Polaroid photograph lying on top the surface of another planet. That's, yeah. uh, that's really something else. I love the contrast of the whole world and then these guys. You know, there's a line which didn't make it into the, into the movie, but it's a, you know, uh, I believe it's an actual line which I stole from Buzz. Buzz watching the coverage and says, you know, can you believe we missed the whole thing? Yeah, actually, I remember I wanted to, I wanted to have that line in there, but um, didn't quite fit. Uh, it didn't quite fit. Yeah. Um, um, so instead, we wound up sort of yeah letting the archival do the talking, including uh, the sort of reprise of the Kennedy, yeah, the Kennedy speech, oh, which, I love we, this. which we we used to hear a little snippet of, in a kind of audio intro in the beginning of the movie, but. Um, we wound up losing that to kind of throw the audience right into the X-15 right away and, and then wound up bringing back the Kennedy speech uh, yeah. for this sort of outro. Well, I 
I love that little story. I think, Josh, it was you found had heard the story about someone, an anonymous person laying a wreath at the at Kennedy's gravesite. It's in Jim's book. Yeah, yeah it's oh, in it's Jim's in, book. Oh, right. and, yeah, yeah. So we, we looped that into the news feed. We wrote a little something yeah, it's a beautiful to sort story. of hit that and then go back to as a way to get back to Kennedy. Um, it's funny. Right here is the, the scene that... Oh, yeah, that, that Janet, or that Claire, Claire had found auditioned and did, auditioned did, with. did her read with, and, uh, yeah. And those are sort of reproductions of some of the signs that were, uh, that were on the yard at that time. I mean, now, technically, actually, it's another little license we take. This interview that we're recreating Voting. here was, was done a little bit earlier in the mission. Neil hadn't actually returned yet, but they had completed, uh, I forget, Josh, had they just landed, uh, or had they completed their EVA? On the, on the I can't remember. It was after one of the big sort of benchmarks had been, had been completed uh, on the moon. So yeah. there was a certain amount of joy and relief, but they weren't yet home. Yeah. Yeah. But we we definitely didn't want to go back to Earth until Neil did, so to speak. I mean, we wanted to carry the mission through to the moon. Unlike Gemini uh, 8, we wanted to uh, keep it very subjective to where Neil was at that point in his life and so not do any inner cutting at that point until he gets back from the moon. And then this the, this scene wasn't initially scripted as the last scene either. It was uh, we used to do a, a kind of carry Neil through uh, the end of quarantine and to uh, his drive home. Uh, Deke sort of driving him home and dropping him off at his house. And so the last what we thought would be the last shots of the movie were kind of exteriors of the Armstrong house and Neil uh, literally coming home. And, uh, and he kind of waved. He sees Rick at the window. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there was, I, I think we were even still shooting, and I think we started talking about just how how much, how good Claire had been and how much it was just became clearer and clearer this was a story about a marriage and that um, this would make for a hell of a last scene. Yeah, to end it with them. Just, yeah, two people looking at each other, and that's what it felt like. That's so contrary to what you would expect, where you expect this homecoming where where the astronaut and the wife run into each other's arms, and instead they come into this room, and there's, they're separated by glass. Yeah, the room is so weird. I mean, I remember seeing pictures of this actual room and, and going into what, what the room has now been sort of converted, retrofitted, but sort of seeing what it is now. It's just the, the setup of it. Um, I can only imagine what it must have felt like sort of stepping in there to see, you know, your, your, your loved one who's just returned from the moon of all places. I mean, he it looks like an alien in, in a glass cage. It's sort of this idea of that total sort of quarantine separation, you know, it's, uh, um, yeah, I think we liked the unromanticism of it. And I think, you, you know, it's the way you shot it, it, there's a way you could look at it and see that they're both kind of under glass. Like it isn't just that Neil yeah. comes back and he's under glass. I mean, she seems just as uh, trapped in some ways. Yeah. They have such amazing eyes, both both Ryan and yeah. Claire. It's just, uh, 
and they're very different eyes. It's what's kind of nice about cutting back and forth between them. Ryan has the you know this, this sort of uh, this kind of pinpoint glare that 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 he does so beautifully. Whereas Claire has these big you know the, the sort of big uh, blue eyes that sort of fill up the frame. Enormous. And uh, and so the sort of uh, the contrast between the two of them. I don't know. It's just. Uh, I mean, we played with that scene a bunch in terms of the actual rhythms of that cutting and who would sort of move in first and what the actual gestures would be. But um, but some of the sort of key takes that were sort of formed the bulk of it in terms of which looks we were using um, were, I think, right there from from the get-go. The first, the yeah, first, some of those uh, pieces were clear. first cut you put together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 an amazing conversation they have without saying anything. And this now Justin's amazing end credit cue yeah. here. And I love what happens later. I hope people stick around and can hear the Gemini 8 comms. Well, everyone's yeah, yeah. left by now, Tom. And I know, but I can still pretend that they're there and I can pretend that they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. We really have no idea who's still, if anyone is still listening. Right. It's true. It's true. I'm sure there's somebody. If someone is still there listening and watching, you're making the three of us very happy. <laughs> <laughs> the real test is to ask people whether they remember the Gemini 8 comms at the end. That's right. What do you yeah, remember about you know, the what, end? What is kind it, of fan they are. Is it, if they just say, oh, the, and Justin's music's so great, then we know that they're lying. Yeah, you, they, well, you really know, how, you know what kind of cinephile they are. So they actually stay to look at all the people who put in the hard work. That's right. To make do this they, movie. Do they honor the artists or do they just kind of talk a good talk and then just like you know, skate out of there to <laughs> validate their parking? <laughs> What's great is anyone who has been on the fence about kind of turning this off or on has definitely now definitely been guilt-tripped into... Oh, yeah. I was going to say is Tom has successfully guilt-tripped them into staying, <laughs> but maybe you're right. Maybe in defiance, <laughs> just turned it off. That's right. But if you have no idea, then... Are there any secrets that we could bury in here? Any good last, like, well, little, like, little-known little fact? this Gemini 8 thing, that is kind of a built-in Easter egg. Yeah, but are there any, any, any secrets? Which, which is, just to clarify, for the hypothetical person who is still listening, after Justin's piece here, you hear a little bit of very faint comms, which are from the actual Gemini 8 mission that we sort of, you know, uh, depict midway through the film. You don't ever hear... Uh, Neil Armstrong's voice itself. I didn't really want to do that. I've always sort of been allergic to the sort of trend of uh, kind of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, you know, sort of uh, historical movies or biopic movies ending with showing you the real people. Right. Um, to me, it's sort of like, a, it always seems a little defeatist. Right. It's like, why, why did you just... Why did we just make the yeah. movie? Why did you just do two hours right. of fakery and, right. and then to show the real thing? So anyway, so I didn't really want to kind of do that, but there's something so magical. I remember, Tom, you and I were talking about this, like, there's something so... Just because during prep, we were doing a lot of just listening to these comms. I remember Gemini 8, especially, you can find all the comms on, uh, uh, you know, on YouTube, yeah, essentially, yeah. and I would just play them on my, you know, on my iPhone whenever I would be walking or driving or anywhere, just to sort of let them sink in. Uh, and there's just a musicality to them. There's a poetry, there's a rhythm, yeah. there's just something about those voices and yeah. about the... The, I guess the poetry of jargon, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I think you and I before... That I just fell in love with. It felt like a fitting way to, to end the film. I think you and I before shooting started when we listened to these comms, we always talked about how they'd play a big part in terms of establishing the rhythm of certain scenes and certain moments uh, for the very reasons you just gave. And uh, 
And we were actually really lucky to be able to not just here, but throughout the movie. I mean, we've we've pinpointed some of these instances, but just to actually be able to use uh, uh, actual comms throughout the movie, that, that in terms of rights and whatnot, and, and NASA's cooperation, that we were uh, that we were able to, you know, hear the real Charlie Duke uh, uh, from Apollo 11, uh, and you know, hear uh, 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 a lot of the real comms from from uh, Gemini 8 as well. And, and uh, you know, uh, uh, it's just. Uh, you know, you can recreate some of that stuff to the best of your abilities, uh, and we did have to do a fair amount of recreation, but there's there's just something, some kind of magic about, about how, the the, how, how these people actually sounded. And I think if you're lucky enough to see this in Dolby Atmos or even 5.1, now you can hear them circulating around the surrounds, almost like a satellite flying above. Yeah, so I guess that means if you weren't listening in Dolby Atmos or 5.1, then... Then and you're out of luck. You've really wasted your time because we haven't said anything of real meaning or value in these last few minutes. So. Thank you, 